Welcome to Shoot the Breeze, where we take a nostalgic look at a random football magazine from the past. I'm Andy Smith, aka Scotch Footy Cards on Twitter, and with me is Tom Brogan. Hello. In each episode, we'll invite a special guest to join us on trawling through the magazine and discuss anything contained within it. This could be anything from an article, to a photo, to a competition, to an advert. Basically, if it's in it, then we'll talk about it. So sit back and let's shoot the breeze. Wriggles clear. Might just get the chip and he does, he's scored! Oh, what a great backlash! And this week's guest is the author of The Last Days of Disco, The Rise and Fall of the Miraculous Vespers, and Welcome to the Heady Heights, it's David F. Ross. Good evening. Welcome, welcome. D- welcome David, thanks for joining us no tonight. No problem, no problem. And so we've got your magazine in front of us, it's a shoot magazine from the 1st of March of 1980, and as we do we'll start from the front cover, so we've got a picture of Andy Gray of Wolves, and he's been closely marked, should we say very closely marked by Willie Young of Arsenal. Um, but what I also notice is Willie Young's actually he's got a ring with no tape on. Yep. Which um, that's that's the red card for me. Um, yeah. the, the magazine itself is twenty pence, and down in the bottom right it says still the real number one in football. So shoot, must be feeling a bit of competition from match at this point. But one of the things that I do constantly talk about is the use of soccer. So it's quite unusual actually at this stage that it says real number one in football whereas in previous years and maybe even subsequent ones but it would have been soccer rather than that um, other features on the, the front page we've got a colour Rangers team group and this is a double page centre spread of the current Rangers squad Kid Jensen a hit with QPR so we've got DJ Kid Jensen who's accepted an invitation to train with QPR for the day and the last feature in the front is the Hulk destined for the top so shoot, take a look at Man United's Kevin Moran as he's about to break through into the big time. So, I mean, it's a lovely front cover there. I think the the wool strip, is, it's one of the Airtex ones, I th- is it? It sort of looks yeah. like Airtex. Yes. Um, Umbro Diamonds. And, you know, well, as I say, Willie Young's got his tongue out there as well and he's a bit, bit close to He's He's um, got eyes for the back of Andy Gray's head, so he's going down. He's not looking at the ball at all. I'm fairly certain that would have been him face planted <laughs> in the mud in about two minutes. And all he would have had would have been uh, a wee ticking off from a referee back that, in the day. Um, I still love Andy Gray. I yeah. mean, I, you know, despite being a Rangers fan, um, you know, Andy Gray was my favourite player when I was mm. young, uh, and when he moved down, and you'll have to correct me here because my memory is terrible. Uh, they moved to Wolves or moved to Aston Villa. Villa first. Villa yeah. first. Yeah. Um, I, I, I was kind of—I don't know why. I was kind of devastated, but I don't really know why because they didn't really play for my team. Do you know? So, so you um, remember him? You Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, I—I specifically remember, um, you know, the. The next big thing, you know, he was mm. a young player, he, you know, been touted to play for Scotland and um, he was just a fantastic player, yeah. brilliant goal scorer, you know. Um, and even then, I kind of I wished he'd played for Rangers. Well, he, he did funnily, his funnily, well, I was going to say that, when he, when he did actually play for Rangers, I wished he did, didn't he? <laughs> um, but that's yeah. just... That's I think just a I, product I, of time, I yeah, think. I think we spoke about this another when he came out. I can't remember who it was that we spoke about. 
and yeah, then we got Jim Jim Delahunt. Jim Delahunt, and um, which is going to air after this. <laughs> Indeed, it is. Yeah, <laughs> forgot about that. But he, he came on. So Andy Gray came on as a sub, and I, remember, I still remember watching this on the TV. And I don't know if it was a ball play through or something, but he had to run for it. And basically, after about five six steps, he was almost vertical. Yeah. Because it was just like it was just like no oh, man. <laughs> Stop it! I'm doing a Morelos there, but um, okay. So if we move into page two and three, uh, this is about as the the feature was mentioned. Look out for the Hulk, one of the talented youngsters about to break through into the big game. So shoot, give the predictions on a number of youngsters who they think will make a name for themselves in the coming season. Top of that list is Man United's youngster Kevin Moran, who they say is putting pressure on Gordon McQueen. Now other names that they mention is John Lukic at Leeds United. Chris Hutton of Spurs, who they should refer to as, in quotes, the coloured boy. Um, yeah, there's, there's a couple more we'll come to as well. Um, Greg Downs of Norwich City. John Devine or John Devaney, what do we think on that, John Devine? John Devine, yeah. John Devine of Arsenal and Tommy Caton of Man City. So as, as we touched on there, as well as should referring to Chris Hutton as the coloured boy, there are similar references for David Bennett of Man City and Terry Corner of Leeds United. On David, they say, City's black ace is a sort of Vincent Hilaire. Garth Crooks and Laurie Cunningham rolled into one. He has that beautiful balance and mobility that seems inherent in the black footballer. Yeah, let's just have a moment of silence there. <laughs> uh, the next one is on Terry Corner. They say... He is a black boy who used to idolise Eddie Gray and Paul Madeley from the terraces not so long ago. I mean, when you read things like this and you hear it, you think, well, and then you look, I mean, it's 1980 and you think that wasn't that long ago, but it's 40 years ago. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think there's, it's quite a difficult thing to put across, you know, when you're, when you're clearly these issues are you know, terrible when you look at them through the prism of where you are now. Yeah. But I, I think also you're having to also remind yourself, do you, do you then judge everything through the the morals and the position that, you know, society's got today? Well, mm. you know, where, how far back do you take that? Yeah. I mean, it is, it is dreadful. Um, but I, I just, I kind of think English football particularly didn't really know how to deal with yeah. um, elements of racism. You know, they're coming through the 70s where you had, programmes like the Black and White Minstrel still on TV mm. and yeah. Love Thy Neighbour you know thing, things that you know um, would are just abhorrent now yeah. you know yeah that's th- almost the kind of norm do you know see, see the thing the thing I think about this and that there's been another couple examples in other articles is that the the, the writer here is probably trying to highlight it's a good thing that the, the black footballers coming through but they're just doing it aye, aye. you know maybe at the time it was a good way of doing yeah, it, it yeah. the way it was done but it just doesn't ham- seem it feels the best way of doing it Aye. Yeah. Aye. but it does you know I think the very fact that it makes us sort of shiver a little bit these days is a sign of Aye. where we've come Progress. well hopefully yeah. you know that we do seem to be regressing, regressing a little bit but I mean the one the one player I remember in that list really and maybe it's to do with um, Andy Gray going to Aston Villa is Gary Shaw yeah. you know um I, I thought Gary Shaw was a fantastic player. He ended up at Kilmarnock for a week. He did, so I was yeah. going to say. I, he played against Claybank. I remember seeing him. Yeah. He only played two league games. And th- th- there's, you know, Villa, when they were in the um, in Europe and getting to the, the later stages of Europe, they played they played with a real swagger, I think. Yeah. Um, and I think Gary Shaw was a lot to do with that. Um, mm. It's funny, he's reading this year. He's obvi- he was obviously a teenager at that time. 
Whereas in Rabbit, I looked at that and thought Gary Shaw was a lot older even. Yeah, but he always, yeah, I think he always looked. He did a bit milky bar face, kid, really, yeah. you know, uh, in a football strip. Even when he was at, even in, even when he was at Kilmarnock, he, he still had that kind of feel of that. That guy's not. 42 yeah, well it was 1990 I think he was at Kilmarnock so <laughs> it was, so he was only 28 or something <laughs> at the time so back, back to that John Lukic is one of the one of four players to play in the top division in England in four different decades is this is this your notes Tom? yes it is yep, yeah. uh, uh, yep starting with his, his debut for Leeds against Brighton in a 0-0 draw on the 13th of October 1979 and he ended uh, with a 0-0 draw against Derby County uh, on the 11th of November 2000 because he played for Leeds then Arsenal then back to Leeds and then Arsenal Aye, I think he had two spells at, at both, both at both clubs I believe mm-hmm. so uh, do you have any idea David who the other three players were who played in f- the top flight of English football across four decades John Burridge that's not the one I've got I think that'd be a good shout out top flight he's probably in my, I don't imagine I'm always place. assuming that these that the big players goal are goalkeepers. Yeah. Do you know? Yeah, two of them are. Uh, Pat Jennings. Nope. Oh, well, st- to get into the silence, I'll just say John Gallagher. <laughs> Peter Shelton. <laughs> Peter Shelton. Steve Ogrizovic. Ogrizovic. Yeah. Right. And Stanley Matthews. Stanley Matthews. I, I mean, that's that's your era. That's not mine. <laughs> I, I don't even remember Stanley Matthews. <laughs> Okay, right, we move on to pages four and five. Then you want to have a wee chat about this, Tom? Right, pages four and five. So this is Ray Clemens talking soccer, like you were saying, Andy. Yeah, soccer. The back to soccer. There we go. So this is a uh, um, uh, Ray Clemens' regular regular comment uh, column. Uh, but just the wee thing that I'd noted from this is uh, he says at the time of writing. There's press talk of interest in Ian Rush, a youngster with Chester who is playing exceptionally well and scoring a goal a game. But so far, I believe he's only played around 20 first team games for them and our club would want to watch him over a long period before they moved in for him. And uh, Ian Rush was uh, was at Chester then. He was an Everton fan, uh, which surprisingly a lot of Liverpool legends were. Michael Owen and Jamie Carragher. We're both Everton fans growing up as well. But uh and he he said in, in an interview Ian Rush that he didn't really see himself doing anything other than playing for Chester until he was about thirty five <laughs> and then going and getting a, a normal job. Uh but Manchester City and Everton were looking at him and he, Ian Rush had said he, he thought Everton didn't fancy him. But um I f- found an interview with Gordon Lee, the Everton manager, who said uh at the time he was looking for a second striker to play with Bob Latchford. He went to watch Chester reserves one night and a young boy called Ian Rush was playing as an attacking midfielder. The next night I was at Dumbarton and saw a raw striker called Graham Sharp. I went back to the chairman and told him that paired together they could be one of the most exciting partnerships in English football. Chester wanted 300 grand for Rush, uh, so I signed Graham for 80,000 because the board said I couldn't have them both. Hindsight, eh? So if you imagine that if he and Rush and Graham Sharp were both playing for Everton. For a combined together, three hundred eighty thousand. Three hundred eighty thousand. Yeah, you would you would absolutely snap that up these days. But another really interesting thing I noticed that uh, Clemens says there is Liverpool's way of avoiding the decline that Manchester United suffered after their magnificent European Cup win in nineteen sixty eight, when they kept an aging team together for too long, is to replace at least one player per season in the first team. Mm. I just thought that was an interesting. I wonder. Way. I wonder if that was something they stuck to religiously. You know, if. It, 
that was just something that accidentally happened. Yeah, possibly. Mm-hmm. As an aside, and to show how easily distracted I can get, <laughs> I took the "What do you know about the police?" quiz <laughs> on the left-hand side of the page and got every one of them wrong. Is that right? the first one? What does the CID stand for? And the reason that I got that wrong was where I grew up. Um, it stood for something totally, <laughs> totally different. Um, but I just, you know, even that, I kind of found that an unusual thing to be and. Uh, the, the the magazine, do you mm. know, it's it's clearly you know, in case people are listening, they don't know what I'm talking about here. It's an advertisement for the police, yeah, and it's outlined as five questions with the answers upside down at the bottom. Mm. Um, what do you know about the police? I just I found it quite an unusual thing. <laughs> you can't imagine that would have, that would be in yeah, you know, uh, any kind of magazine now. Do you yeah, know? I mean, you, you would have seen yourself, Tom, and some of the other ones. There's been ones for the army. There's been ones for yeah, the navy. Yeah, um, probably some other. Um, police ones as well. I would. I mean, I would imagine that you know recruitment with predominantly young young boys, young is, yeah, boys yeah. has probably been been targeted. You know? mm. Okay, so we're on to pages six and seven. So this is news desk section. So it's basically short stories and short little short uh, short shorts. And we'll start with the Scottish league league fixtures. So there's a section on the left hand side there. Says the Scottish League will play the League of Ireland in Dublin on March 17th, St Patrick's Day, and not Sunday. The Scots will also play the Irish League in Belfast on the Sunday. Now, the spoiler here is that Scotland lost 2 1 to the League of Ireland and then beat Northern Ireland 4 2. And this was the last representative league side other than the one played in the League Centenary match in 1990, which we had discussed previously. So I've got some information from both games. So the 17th of March one against the Republic was at Dallamount Park. And it was 2-1 to the Irish. It was Walsh and Flanagan with the goal for Scotland from Eric Sinclair of Dundee. They're just some of the names from the Scottish League team. McCulloch of Kilmarnock, Sinclair Dumbarton, McDickin, Kilmarnock, Clark Kilmarnock, McLean Kilmarnock, uh, Richardson St Mirren, Gibson Kilmarnock. So there's obviously quite a few Kilmarnock ones here. Monroe St Mirren. Bobby Thompson, uh, Morton, Eric Sinclair, Dundee, Eddie Morris, Air United, subs told me, um, and he looks like the only sub in that game. So the next day, Scotland again played against the Irish FA and beat them 4-2. Goals from McNamara, Sumner, Ritchie and Melrose. Now, it turns out that there was actually two completely different teams that were played so I think there was like 23 players in total that yeah. played so the the team that played on the Sunday was like Billy Thompson McKinnon Orr Fulton Whitaker McNamara uh, Ali McLeod Hibbs um, Johnny you know, none of the top teams there no Celtic no Rangers mm-hmm. no Aberdeen no Dundee United yeah and, and this, at this point I mean like Sam Morton and St Mirren that were doing really well in the league so I think yeah Andy Ritchie was in there he scored as well um, so it was just I do have a photograph of it as well um, I don't have it here at the minute but it's obviously a really big squad there and I can, I can only imagine you know going away for two days four days or whatever there would be some stories from from that um, especially the fact that after the Saturday that side could basically down tools and have a yeah. have a blowout uh, so next one Hoyk Royal Albert so there's a little article here that says Hot Ro- Hoyk Royal Albert, these the Scotland League side from the Borders Rugby Stronghold, are to install floodlights at the Albert Park ground. Now, I've looked into this. The floodlights were installed the following year and they were used in a friendly against Celtic, which included the likes of Charlie Nicholas and Davy Moyes. And interestingly as well, to actually raise the funds 
to get the the floodlights. They played against Celtic in May of 1980 when the magazine is as well. So there must have been some Celtic connections, I'd imagine, there mm-hmm. in order to get the fundraiser and then the actual official opening of that. Uh, we have a Clydebank connection here, Tom. Blair's tipped. So Blair Miller, the Clydebank striker, is a hot favourite to land a £1,000 prize for the fastest goal to be scored in the Scottish Cup competition this season. He headed his side's goal in the third round, 1-1 draw against Stirling Albion at Kabui in 2 minutes and 30 seconds. Now, I've done a bit of research on this, and when I say research, I've contacted David Lundberg. Um, <laughs> and he he couldn't find it out for me, so I, I, I don't Do you know. Think if he it's ended something up. that should have made up just to fill space. And they've made up a fictitious fastest goal competition. Just uh, to spell, well, get, fill. given the fact a thousand pound in nineteen eighty is a lot of money for just scoring sure. the fastest goal. You know, fair enough if it's most goals over a season or something like that, or goal of the season. But the fastest goal in a competition just seems like. I, I don't think it was made up for. They could have just made the font bigger and all the other articles <laughs> and um, did that. Um, so if anybody out there knows if Blair Miller won the fastest Scottish Cup goal in season 79 80, can you let us know? It's something you can ask him next month at the Claybank yeah, Sportsman's Dinner. Very good shout, yeah. <laughs> or whenever it is in relation to when this um, yeah. podcast gets released. Okay, Vale of Leithen. I'm going to say it because there's a Vale of Leithen, but this is Vale of Leithen, so I'm going to pronounce it like that. The Borders Club who play in the East of Scotland League have received a full strip from an anonymous donor. So that's made its way into Shoot magazine. Just a little article like that, isn't it? But it's like, will we ever find out who it was? Yeah, I mean, those three in a row seem like things that are just... So randomly placed. Do you know, do you know they're also, it's, it's, it's like, okay, the east of Scotland, east of Scotland, you know, and it's like, maybe there's been a shoot journalist who's been on the train and he stopped off and he's just thought, uh, I'll go into a pub and have a chat with, one, with some of the people and these the, are the, the stories. I, I suppose the one thing generally, I mean, I'm, you're only at page seven, but having looked through it, there seems to be a broader spread of Scottish coverage generally, you Absolutely. know, than I would have expected. Yeah, no, which is interesting. It's, it's definitely the case, and you know, we note this a lot, and it's probably the case up until surprise, surprise, the, the early nineties yeah. and ninety two is that is that line, isn't mm-hmm. it? Um, but yeah, I mean, sometimes it's the, the front pages. It's like you just look at it and think, oh, this is going to be a Scottish. Yeah. Um, and and then as I say, there are some magazines that I look through, and it's just like just try to get little crumbs Aye. in them but thankfully back then there was a you know a, a great deal of um, information from Scotland and there's another one here Ross County so Ross County have set a Highland League signing record by paying seven and a half thousand for Inverness Cali striker Ray McIntosh during the close season the Dingwall Club signed Cali defender Peter Corbett for four point five thousand uh, now on Ray he now lives in New Zealand and he's a former Caledonian player and manager who also turned out for Nairn County and Clacknacudden. He left for New Zealand back in 1987 when he was offered a chance to coach a National League side there and he was only meant to be there for one season. But he returned back to Nairn and after spending five weeks there, so he obviously got fed up with the Scottish weather, he decided to pick up sticks and move to New Zealand permanently. Uh, while, while he was in Scotland, he won the Sunday Mail Player of the Year in 1974. Presumably, that would have been a Highland League Player of the Year award. 
and he's also won numerous league titles at Cali and netted a treble in his first season managing the club in 1983-84. So he, he's, he's done really well there uh, managing, um, and I'm, I'm guessing he's probably a bit of a bit of a hero, a bit of a legend there. But I just love the fact that he's went to New Zealand, came back, spent five weeks in Scotland, and thought, "Look at this, I'm I'm off again." So we've got Jim Doherty, a man of many clubs. So we've got a former Chelsea player, Jim Doherty, is with his fourth club in just over a year. He moved to Stamford Bridge from East Stirling for £60,000 early last year. Now I'm going to make a correction at this point because 45000 seems to be what the fee actually was and it's actually a, a club record fee still for East Stirling. So it says four months ago he returned to join Dundee United but has now moved to Hearts. He's acting manager Alex Rennie's first signing and the Tynecastle fans are hoping that the scoring touch which took him to England will return to help the Edinburgh side make sure of promotion once again to the Premier Division. So we're just going to have a look through his career, Jim, James Doherty here. So he was born in November 56, so he's 63 at the moment and he comes from Broxburn. As he started um, with Aldhouse United before he went uh, senior and that's when he spent a couple of years at East Stirlingshire. So he had 47 league appearances and 28 goals in that time and I guess that's what brought him to the attention of the likes of Chelsea and other clubs so in that time Chelsea 79 he made three appearances Dundee United he made two appearances Hearts he was there between 79 and 82 and only made five league appearances and he didn't score any goals in any of that time 81 to 82 he went to St Johnston and got a good run out 49 go- games and 13 goals so he started scoring again not to the same degree a uh, couple of years at Partick Thistle, no goals. Meadowbank on loan, no goals. And Dunfermline Athletic, no goals there either. Um, and the last we've got here is that he was at Whitburn after that. So he's he's obviously came on and fire. Um, you know, he scored a lot of goals at that level and it's not really been able to happen elsewhere. Um, as I say, the, the, the fee he's moved to Chelsea remains a club record that he's still in shot to this day. So... Are you going to say something no. at all? Okay. I don't. I, I don't remember him at all. I mean, I'm a Chelsea fan as well, but I don't remember Jim Doherty's name yeah. at all. Of three games, I suppose it's mm. not going to be. I mean, it's, it's considering yeah, considering how many he's played and how many he's scored, he's made you know a pretty good impact on the history of certain club. I mean, yeah. he's still sure he's, he's the is um, the the record um, the record signing fee or the record um, selling fee, and you know he's, he's scored a few goals and he's been at some pretty good clubs there as well but mm-hmm. so David you mentioned that you're a Chelsea supporter and you're at great pains to suggest it was before the big bucks rolled in to um, Stamford Bridge so yeah. h- how did you end up becoming a Chelsea oh, that's really um, really well there, there's kind of two aspects to that story but they, they both go back to 1970 um, and I had first football strip I had um, was a Rangers strip that my dad got me um, but it, it didn't have um, it didn't have the badge on it so it was in effect a blue t-shirt um, <laughs> but it, it was the Rangers top and shorts and all the rest of it um, and I had um, we I, I had three Subutio teams at that time we used to talk about you know in the early days almost early days of Subutio um, and Rangers, the blue, a blue team, Rangers was yeah. one of them, and the other two teams were, um, if you wanted to make up a tournament, you know, yeah. Rangers 
could be Chelsea as well. Yeah. And then it dawned on me that the Chelsea strip um, was effectively the Rangers strip, but with a different badge. Mm. And that was the year of the um, cup final. The cup final. Um, so they, you know, I, the age I am now, you know, I, I would find it kind of important to think about buying a football strip. But um, I'm going to buy the Chelsea one just simply for that reason because I, th- I think it's the 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 one that they've got on the cup, yeah. which goes back to the yeah, original yeah. one. Uh, and, you know, I, I, I suppose to a certain extent that's how nostalgia works. Mm-hmm. But Chelsea were always my team from that kind yeah. of point on. Um, I'd, I'd, I favoured, like everybody else, you know, you favour certain clubs. And when Andy Gray moved to Aston Villa, I had a wee bit of a thing for Aston Villa as well. But, you know... Um, I've always kind of stuck through Chelsea and, and it, yeah. it's never always been great. I mean, they had that <laughs> bloody terrible that pitch at the back as yeah. well, you know, uh, like everybody else. And every game that you seem to watch that you could see on Match of the Day or something like that, the pitch just looked like a cow field. Yeah. But you had great players like Peter Osgood and uh, Charlie Cook. Um, and um, who, who would have been your favourite? Charlie you? Cook, yeah. really, I think. I, uh, when I played up a, a Played football kind of on the left wing, you know, left, and I'm really only still to this day left footed to a certain extent. So, still playing, still playing, Charlie Cook and Saturday mornings, yep, still play. (laughs) Uh, In fact, I don't know if I'm allowed to mention Nutmeg, but absolutely, yeah. The next edition's got a wee story about people my age and their addiction to five asides and. Or seven asides and why it means so much to us, you know. Mm-hmm. So the opening line of that basically, as I, I've kind of now reached the age where I can sort of imagine myself not working, but I, I can't really imagine myself not playing football, do you know? Mm-hmm. So, which is a pretty unusual thing to. Uh, it's an unusual point to reach. Yeah. But yeah, Charlie Cook and David Cooper, uh, I, I suppose um, people that I always felt an affinity with. That mm-hmm. you know, in the face of it, looked like they were brilliant, but they I only th- looked like they had one foot. I think Chelsea were, Chelsea were interested in Cooper back when Villa were trying to get I everybody was interested in David Cooper. So that, that could have, might have got both your favourite players in the same could team. Could have been. That'd be something else. Okay, page nine. We're still on the Scottish content. Um, Tartan talk. We'll get back to this one in a wee second. I can see you're, you're hovering over that. So, <laughs> so I just say because there's a, a fact. Let's let's start with that. So it's a, it's your classic Umbro official team strips and tracksuits article, and it's um, the Scotland Scotland kit and the Scotland tracksuit. Um, and as is the the norm in a lot of the things back then, that they're, they're drawn rather than any sort of photographs of that. And it's just you know we'll say it again. It's in black and white, but you can just you can feel the red the socks you can feel the blue of the yeah. top and it's just absolutely for me the dream Scotland strip £12.90 oh, well. for the whole thing yeah. uh, although that's for the kids one on the left hand side but 15 quid for the oh no actually um, that's the tracksuit price on the right hand yeah. side I when, I, when I opened the page, I was it was actually not so much the the football strip advert. I was looking at was the pennants. Right. Okay. Um, I used to have loads of pennants on on the wall and did you, uh, did you flat and right. I, I unlike you though, um, I'm <laughs> unfortunately not a collector, and I, reg- I regret a lot of the things that have kind of gone from yeah. life because on the face of it, I should be a collector. You know, I'd, I had loads of vinyl, I had loads of singles, um, I had I've kind of got a compulsive interest in things mm. that my son's now got you yeah. know um, 
but you know you look back and you think I oh, wish I still had that and that's why I'm looking at all of these things that you you put out yeah. and think oh, that must be great to have you, you're in, you know, almost your entire emotional life is wrapped up in the things that take you right back to you know how you felt when yeah. you when you saw it the first well, time I mean there's nothing to stop you starting that again which is what I've done sure, these because sure. you know given you know brought up in a tenement there was three brothers a sister my mum and dad and it was like there wouldn't have been any room to store these aye, things aye. I mean we're just lucky that we kept the cards but aye. then again they t- take up a relatively small space in a cupboard mm-hmm. but you know like I said the collection I've got there's no way I could have had that from my child firstly you wouldn't have team photos intact no you wouldn't have th- this that and the other things there would have been moustaches drawn over <laughs> things and things <laughs> cut out and one of the things we used to do and it was it was my brother Paul's idea so when it gets to the team photo so what we would do so we'd, we would have Subutal but we couldn't afford to buy all the different teams and bits and pieces and stuff so we sort of made a game ourselves and what we did was you'd take a team photo and you would take like a shreddies box or something mm-hmm. and, and you would cut round the faces and you would put them onto little cards and put sellotape round them with the names on it and you Aye. would use those little cards it was a ball bearing, a metal ball, ball bearing, Aye. and we would play games of football. And it wouldn't be like Superbeautiful, but you could, you could make it more tactic, tactical, yep. and yep. you could put a narrative to it. And he would do the commentary, and we'd just be fascinated with it. But what it was, it would, it, you could then have Ajax, you could have PSV, you yeah. could have all these little English teams, the little Scottish teams, mm-hmm. which you couldn't have in Superbeautiful. And you get to know the names, you get to know the faces, yeah. and it was just a really interesting way of of picking up information because likes of the cards you know yourself if you collected the cards a lot of the the reasons you know footballers from back then is because it's of the cards, because of cards Be- and you think that's how they looked when in, in fact sometimes it was the wrong person but you just assumed that that's right i mean i point to the sandy burrow one sandy burrow and cammy fraser both of hearts in the same set was the same person <laughs> And you never even notice it, but when you put them side by side now, you go, of course they are. Right. It's so obvious. And the information on the back. So it's it's the way that you, you learned how Remember, right. names and things like that did as you, well. Did you have, do you have the league ladders? Yeah. Remember the ladders? With the I, do, I, didn't, I may actually, I don't have them with me, but I did have, I've got them up here somewhere. But I've, yeah, I've got loads of them that are still intact as well uh-huh. um, so that's a wee bit like you know you can immediately remember how the name was written on the mm-hmm. tab and what the background was yeah. do you know it's yeah. um, it's fascinating how these things take you right back to maybe the first time you saw it or the time mm. that you were you know yeah. um, okay so over the page then we're on Tartan Top with Danny McGrain and it's a really great Euro draw so the article itself has a photo of Laurie Cunningham of Real Madrid with the text Laurie will prove a big threat to Celtic when they take on Real Madrid. So Danny says, it's a royal occasion. That's the only way to describe the quarter-final draw of the European Cup, which paired us with the one-time invincible masters of that tournament, Real Madrid. And he goes on to say, for two or three days after the draw was made, Parkhead was really buzzing with excitement. Of course, we knew we had to put it out of our heads and get on with the job at hand in the domestic front. He says, this Real Madrid will never be as good as those immortals who won the first five European Cups. They're still a great team, but I think we can take them. I am positive Celtic can take a good result from Celtic Park, but it'll be difficult at the Bernabeu. Now, spoiler, Celtic won 2-0 at Parkhead, but they lost 3-0 in the return at Bernabeu. 
Uh, say for the home game, sixty-seven thousand tickets were sold within days. And that's that's amazing for back that's then when it was, there wasn't online and things like that. Basically, people would have had to queue. Yeah, people queued, people and left their work early yeah. or turned up late to go yeah. and stand outside yeah. Celtic Park. Amazing. So the goals were from McCluskey and Doyle. They scored um, Celtic's two goals at Parkhead. And the return leg kicked off at 5pm. And it wasn't shown live on the BBC as they refused to, as Real Madrid had sponsors on their jersey. But it was live on Radio Clyde. And Clydebank's Jack Steedman uh, put that down to the low attendance at Cavoy <laughs> Park. So <laughs> people had stayed in yeah. to listen to the second half of the Celtic game. So did well. What excuses did they give for all the other games? That's, that's well done, Jack. Um, so we're on to page twelve here, and it's Kid Jensen a hit with QPR. So Kid was accept had accepted an invitation to train with his QPR heroes and had the time of his life. And the photos shown being put through his paces on the the training pitch. Um, he's a Canadian-born British DJ who joined Radio Luxembourg at the age of 18. Now, for those of you down out there who don't know Radio Luxembourg, it was essentially a pirate radio station running out of Luxembourg, yes, the country. It allowed them to advertise products by circumventing British re- legislation, which until '73 gave the BBC pretty much a monopoly of radio broadcasting on UK But territory. what I remember about Kid Jensen, I'm sure you will as well, David, is he was famously a St Mirren fan. Uh, I don't do remember. Uh, yeah, um, I don't know how that came about. Well, it, 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 came, it came about when he did a genealogy, uh, a genealogy program. Just start that wee bit again. Eh? <laughs> it's what started when he did a, a genealogy program. Uh, I knew my mother was from Glasgow somewhere, but I didn't know until then it was Paisley. I had a cousin who lived in Love Street, right opposite the ground. So in the 1982-83 season, I went up and met the family in their house. I saw St Mirren lose to Celtic, but it was a fantastic weekend. The stadium had an atmosphere. It obviously seen better days, but the wooden beams could talk. There would be some pretty good stories. I wore the shirt on top of the pops once. Uh, I came up another time and did a, a turn as part of Jackie Copeland's testimonial. If I remember rightly, the venue was Toledo Junction. <laughs> Uh, that's, a, that's a real supporter that's no just somebody who's picked a name out of yeah, yeah. yeah. But, but what I discovered when I was researching that was controversially uh, Kid Jensen switched from QPR to Crystal Palace Sorry. in the mid 80s there's a Crystal Palace there's a thread in a, Crystal pa- in a QPR forum oh, where, where I can imagine the hatred they're raging about him <laughs> apparently he didn't like the, the artificial pitch at Loftus Road right. so he started supporting Crystal Palace Jesus. instead he might. I mean, there must. There must be. He must have done a section before about unusual people who support well, clubs. Have you done it? Yeah. Let's start. Yeah, because we've got lots of spare time to do things like that, Tom. That's <laughs> 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 me just getting ejected yeah, yeah. now. First, I tell you um, what, you do that because the only that. the only one I can really think of is the one everybody knows. Because I'm from down Kilmarnock way, you know, uh, Marie Osmond. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah, um, yeah. Although I think you know, there's 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 loads of debates about how. That song, you know, the, uh, mm. actually became aligned with them. I don't really know. I don't really know the answer. I think the um, Donny McDowell, I think, was the club striker at the time when the song was out, and that's the only thing I could think yeah. of that would have aligned it. You know, I don't know, but I, I was um, saying, talking to somebody about this the other day about um, Paper Roses, and I'm surprised we've not taken it on board as Paper Hankies. The Clive Hankies. <laughs> Paper hankies. 
Well, yeah, you, can actually, you can start at the next home game. Don't, don't, no, don't give me that tone of voice. Right, OK. Page 14 we're on now. So this is a full colour, full page colour photo of Jerry Murphy of Crystal Palace. Uh, he's a Republic of Ireland International with three caps. He played 229 league games for Crystal Palace before moving to Chelsea where he played 34 league games. In 1989, he moved to Australia, where he played for Blacktown City and then Wollongong City. Wollongong City. And he's wearing that classic strip. Crystal Palace strip. Yeah. Crystal Palace are one of those teams who have just had absolutely fantastic strips throughout throughout the ages. I mean, yeah. I can I can picture some of them right now. The, there was a sort of burgundy and blue stripe one as well, and it's they've, mm-hmm. they, they've just done some another one is Plymouth Plymouth have had some brilliant strips as well it's amazing how some teams just get it right I always thought Tottenham throughout the 80s had some great strips home and away home and away okay sort of helps I think if your if your base colours white to some extent you know um, and I think the any of the, the I mean the worst football strip I can ever remember is a Coventry City Brown one yeah. do you know the thing with yeah, the, the arches I'm, I'm, you like that I'm a fan of that um, on, on the basis of it's so bad it's good yeah maybe maybe I just yeah there's like who else would try there's, I'm going to call it chocolate brown rather than jobby brown okay but that's who else would try you'd have to have like the, you'd have to have a real brass neck to put that on yeah. uh, the one thing I suppose is uh, Admiral kind of mm-hmm. hoovered up loads of the strips at that time yeah. didn't he because I think I think that one was not the Wolves yeah. one was an Admiral one as well wasn't it? I don't know about the Wolves one uh, the Coventry one the Coventry one. Coventry, so sorry. Yeah. Coventry Co- the brown Coventry one. Yeah. I th- yeah. See, I, I think... Um, what Southampton as well. With yeah, the, the yeah there was loads of... I think there was actually a, a Spurs one Admiral did as yeah, well. Absolutely. But I think what Admiral did was they, they just tried new things and new designs mm-hmm. and they were quite, you know, daring. And, you know, whereas other clubs were just playing or, you know, with white cuffs and things like that. And yeah. they, they were just breaking the mould of what the football strip looked like. And, you know, most of them probably were hits I mean there were some that weren't but um, like I said yeah okay we'll, we'll put the brown one in there <laughs> but the, the, the blue version was great <laughs> okay so we'll move on to page 18 we'll just skip a page and we're at You Are The Ref so this is the the regular feature that was in shoot um, certainly back in the day uh, I'm just going to pick out one or two of these so it says a player the first one here is a player is receiving treatment just off the pitch and he deliberately trips up a player running down the line what do you do so it gives you three options Um, do you award a direct free kick against the injured player do you award an indirect free kick or do you drop the ball where the incident took place so what's your initial thoughts on this I I would have thought it would and I haven't looked at the answers yet so I would have thought it would have been the first one Mm mhm it's the correct answer, a direct free kick, and I'd, I'd probably caution them as well. Uh, potentially a red card, depending on the. It would be now, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so on to number four here. This this one, um, this, uh, I'd like to get your opinion on this. So just prior to kick off, you notice a player who you know is currently suspended. Can you order him off, therefore stopping him playing? So what do you think? Um. So there's a, there's a player there. You know that he shouldn't be playing. And can you order him off? I suppose the obvious, you know, you would look at that and think the obvious answer would be yes. Mm-hmm. But I don't know if that would just be the obvious answer now. Yeah. 
Well, they, they, they don't really go into much detail. They just say, no, you can't. Um, but mm-hmm. My question is, so what would you do? I mean, essentially, you know that they're playing a player who's not eligible to play. Mm-hmm. So would you just let it happen and then inform the authorities, in which case that's... be a penalty later. Yeah, and it's like, well, why wouldn't you deal with it at the time if you know? Do you speak to the... To the the management of the team, and you know, obviously, team sheets have to be submitted a certain an hour before kick off and things. So they, even if they subbed them off, he's still on the team sheet. Do you know it might it might come down to that thing that the referee shouldn't shouldn't be inter shouldn't be interfering with a disciplinary matter for the club. Mm. You know, so. Um, he might look at that and think, well, I know that player's suspended, but yeah. that's going in the report, and and the club are going to be dealt with more severely. Yeah. Do you know? Yeah, no, to, I, to, to the point where I think, in some respects, if it'd been a European game, they might have lost the tie. Mm-hmm. It's you know, it's maybe one of those things. Well, don't let the referee get involved in that yeah. argument. I guess I guess it's you know you, you've got two ways to look at it. One is the referee doesn't know, so what does he do? He plays as aye, usual, aye. and then okay, he knows, but he has no power. To do anything other than just report so maybe, maybe mm-hmm. that's what it is, but okay. So, all right, can we turn to David for sure. a for a wee moment? So, uh, David, so this just uh, sorry, I've <laughs> just before you do that, <laughs> my publisher's going to go mental because you're just about to plug a book, and I'm looking at number five here. But <laughs> number five says the match ball, which is brown, bursts. The only available replacement is a white one. Should you continue with this <laughs> ball? I thought that was quite funny. Sorry. Sorry. Yes, by all means, plug these books. So, uh, so I'm sitting here with a. This is your latest published novel. Welcome to the Heady Heights. So this is the third and a. No, this is a standalone. This is the fourth published book right. and a standalone story. Um, the first three were um, something of a trilogy. A, a trilogy in the sense that there was a continuity of the characters through them. Although I think the books stand on their own did merits. You, did you plan? For it to be no, I didn't actually, um, and and I suppose nothing about the writing was really ever planned. You know, I I, um, I started writing the first book um, when I, we had an, an extended period of work overseas in places like Libya and China. You know, kind of unusual places where. Um, there wasn't an awful lot to do. You had a lot of downtime. Do you know? This is near work as an architect. Work as an architect, aye, and. I'd, I'd always been, I used to write articles for the office, you know, or design articles, or, and, and writing had always been something that I found quite therapeutic. And I thought that, you know, it's maybe a good way to pass quite a long period of time on planes and things like that. And eventually started, this idea came about um, basically the time I was 18 and leaving school, and I kind of remembered the catalyst for it was really my dad making a comment about um, me sort of wasting my time you know, had had been I think the term politely asked to leave the school um, uh, before expelled I think it seems such a hard word these days um, I quite like to think that they kind of politely asked me maybe, <laughs> maybe not coming back would be useful and at that point I think he was a wee bit annoyed about that and had kind of raised the threat that, oh, well, at least you'll be going to the Falklands then with everybody else. And there was a brief period of time um, where actually people my age kind of thought that that was going to be possible. It was a weird 
it, it was a weird time, but it, it was really tangible. And I thought that, that's a kind of interesting line of a story where you know you've got a couple of people who leave school with no real um, ambition or, or understanding of what they're going to do with their life, mm-hmm. but they think music's the thing, you know. Um, but they they can't they, they can't play instruments, so becoming a becoming a mobile DJ seems like everything. <laughs> and then you've got this parallel story of uh, one of the characters' older brother, who joined the army the year earlier, and in, in a bit of desperation to try and get some respect from his dad, finds himself in a situation where he ends up getting sent to fight a war, yeah. um, eight thousand miles away. I mean, yeah. it was a mad time, you know. Um, and you know the third line in that story, just because. Um, the jeopardy comes from the fact that there's local gangsters who kind of control the mobile disco fraternity and want them to join up, and they're not going to do that. And you know, so I mean, it was it was a I quite liked the idea of how that story could come together, but I never really um, I never really had any ambitions to have it published. It was mainly just something. Okay, so when, when did that change? When did you decide this was going to be um, The publishing and the thing was really unusual. Um, and in the early days of Twitter, I was, I was kind of obsessed with Twitter in the early days, and, and I created a character on Twitter uh, and gave him a backstory. And uh, you, to the, the two of you are going to look at me as if I'm absolutely <laughs> mental when I tell you this story. Um, but he was a character loosely based on my dad called Bobby Sinus. This is the Shettleston. And he was a Shettleston private investigator. And the idea was we were going to try and tell a story over a month with one tweet a day. Yeah. But the, the the tweets would all come from different people and I would do the ones in between. And at the end of it, you know, there was an idea to see does that story actually make sense? Um, and, <laughs> and we ended up doing it. Um, I say we, there was some other people got involved and helped with the organisation of it all. But we were basically writing to people we admired to say would you do this you know yeah. like Irvin Welsh and um, Alan Bissett did one and Douglas Henshaw the actor did one you know uh, Lloyd Cole from the commotions so all these people were all contributing these okay. and and the things building up and the character ends up with its own Twitter account and all the rest of it anyway long story short um, a publishing house in London was following the account and eventually got in touch with me and asked me if I would review a book and topically, it, it was a book from um, a guy, uh, Danny Rhodes, who'd written a book called Fan, which mm. I'll give him a wee plug here. It's, it's a great book. I mean, it's it's a fictional novel but to- about Hillsborough, but uh, it's from the perspective of a Nottingham Forest fan. Right. Um, and the trauma that comes from all the rest of that. And, and I think the publishing house, it was a wee bit of an unusual book for them. So they had asked me if I would review it for them. Um, and I had originally said, look, that's not really what I do, you know, and I wouldn't want to be disrespectful to the guys who put a lot of effort into it. Um, but Karen, my publisher now, had said, look, we'd really be keen on you doing this. So I said, look, send me the book. I'm going to Singapore for um, for work. Um, I'll take it with me and if it grabs me then I'll try and do something um, and I'll write you something back um, and it, it was it, it, it was really good, it was really well written I, I, I suppose from my point of view it was a wee bit, there wasn't enough light and shade in it for me, yeah. it was quite, you know but the thing about it was um, it, it kind of, it made me think about my dad, you know um, my dad was at the Ibrox disaster right, okay. and his brother 
was his brother, elder brother John, played for Sunar. They were all obsessed with football, you know. My, his father had gone as a Rangers fan to um, to see Celtic winning the European Cup mm-hmm. because he thought it was just an incredible thing for a Scottish team to be able to achieve, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, that feeds into our um, questions that we've asked before about... Yeah, was a, that the, the, When they played Leeds... Um, Celtic played Leeds and there was talk about there being yeah. fans from other clubs there supporting well, them, so. he, he, they, I, I think they, they went because they thought this is just unbelievable you know and obviously you know when Rangers ended up with the Cup Winners Cup then mm. they felt a lot better about it then <laughs> but, <laughs> well um, Rangers were in the Cup Winners Cup final the following that's week, right yeah, that yeah, year yeah. As well. um, so anyway um, I it made me think about how my dad must have felt because after that, after the Ibrox game, he didn't go to another game. Oh. Never went to another football and match again. after. And I kind of thought, how? How? I know. I know it's obviously a terrible thing, um, but what? How would that put you off something that you loved so much? And I think after reading Danny's book, I kind of got a wee bit yeah, of that. Yeah, if you know what I mean. So I put that into the review, and, and they thought it was great. And eventually, I kind of thought. Well, it's now or never, you know. I said to Karen, "Look, now that I've done this, can I send you something that I've written?" And she tells that story now that you know you think, "God, I'm going to get something that's going to be absolutely rubbish." But thankfully, they offered me a contract for it three days later. So, so that was it, really. And I think your question about the trilogy, um, I, I had never really intended to do anything more than the one book. Yeah, yeah. I thought, you know, it was great, and I liked doing it. But I've got a job, you know. Yeah, I don't. Yeah. This is not mm-hmm. a job, you know. And then, you know, there's a there's a contract on offer for another book and another book. And you think, if you invest the amount of time into the characters, in, in some respects, the easiest thing to do is well, they're kind of real to you. Yeah. So rather than starting from scratch, why don't we pick yeah, wee yeah. bits of the story that? Well, that was the next thing on. I was going to ask: is where it comes? Does it come from the characters first, or the? Or a plot. First. Um, I, I think most people who've written a book of fiction probably tell you that the first book they do is a bit more autobiographical than others, and that's certainly true of, of me. After that, you know, it, it was a question of the invented characters or the ones that are exaggerated and mm. things like that. Um, you know, you kind of get under the skin of them, and you know that there's more life in it. So it's, yeah, yeah. it's always character driven for me. Yeah, I, th- I think you've got quite a good sense of place. And your, your books as well. I, I think that, that's probably an architectural thing, you know. <laughs> and it, uh, do book festivals and things like that. And probably the question I get asked the most is: uh, these seem like two totally different um, interests, and I, and I don't really see it like that. I think, you know, you're, when you're working as an architect, you're kind of trying to imagine and create an environment for mm. people to inhabit. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a wee it's bit like thing book, the same yeah, thing, yeah. you know. It's got to be believable, and it's got to be. So I think the books are all, with the exception of one that I'll maybe talk about that's coming out later on this year, the books are all based in real places. Um, and, and I like the idea of people thinking that, um, you know, I, I know what he's talking about there. I know the Glasgow in 1975 and I know the Necropolis and, and, and therefore, although they're fictional stories, I quite like the idea of blurring the boundaries between people thinking, well, did that actually happen or was yeah. that maybe real? And, and we had a bit of fun with that, with the Miraculous Vespers, um, to the point where, um, you know, we had the, the the band get to number one, you know, and they're being funded by the f- proceeds from the Glasgow Ice Cream Wars. They don't realise this at the time. Um, I thought, you know, how, how, 
how, how can I convey a song that, you know, what does that feel like? How do you write and describe a song? I thought, it'd be great if we actually recorded a song, you know, and it started to feel like that was their record and then the legend starts to build up stuff. Yeah. So um, we got a record, persuaded uh, the publisher to press it onto a seven-inch single. And it was mental. And then when the book came out... Um, <laughs> Waterson's put it in the music section which the publisher was raging about you know but I thought it was really funny you know I thought the idea that this is this is actually a biography it's almost like a spinal tap sort of thing it's, it's um, almost believable well in the record and you know the, and then the third one was basically the, the characters from the first book having to getting back together again in, in middle age and mm. um, trying to do something to honour um, a, a dead friend and they come up with this idea of having a one day music festival on the Isles of Craig mm. uh, and that brought the band back into it again because the band were going to be the headline act mm. so uh, but this one was a that, that was a completely standalone right. thing and, and again you know um, I we talk about my dad quite a lot in these things but um, you know that book was really for him um, he died before he died before any of the books were out right. you know um, but the things in there and, and there's two or three characters that are named after friends of his mm -hmm. you know and so that's kind of his story really yeah. you know ok well since we're here um, we're going to do a focus on alright so the, you know about the, the feature that's in the back of this one so we're going to do a focus on yourself so I'm just going to throw random questions yeah and you can choose to answer them or not answer <laughs> them um, so full name David Fleming Ross birthplace uh, Belvedere Hospital Parkhead first car first car a Peugeot 205 a red car two door ok favourite player you um, can have two here of all time no fact let's stick with one favourite player of all time um, I think probably Baggio um I don't. I, I would probably find it difficult to articulate why, you know, mm. but there's something about uh, that kind of level of coolness, um, and I'm talking about here the Juventus years yeah. primarily, um, and I know there are you know there's other players that um, have influenced teams more, or you know, um, it'd be a toss up between Baggio and Johan Cruyff. Mm -hmm. I think probably because of what the two of them sort of represent. Yeah. If you know what I mean? Yeah. Okay. Uh, Favorite team? Um, I, I'm going to have to say Rangers here, and I, I know that makes it sound like I'm. That's a qualification, but is it because um, of the Chelsea? Chelsea no, 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 no. It's it's just it's not been easy to be a Rangers fan for the last <laughs> ten years. Yeah. Okay. It's most memorable match. Most memorable match. Um, I I think probably recently there was a Ranger Celtic game uh, at Ibrox that Morris Edu scored in probably the fourth minute injury time, and that was pretty memorable. It's From it was about the first half a yard <laughs> out. <or something. laughs> um, um, I think. Uh, oh God, what's his name? The Irish lad Lafferty no I was playing for Celtic uh, and it might have been his first old fun game uh, or Keane yeah. Robbie Keane mm -hmm. was Robbie Keane played for Robbie Keane yeah. I'm sure it was uh, and there was a bit of trepidation about 
that. Mm. Um, but the, the reason it was probably memorable is it's the first Old Firm game I went to with my son. Yeah. Uh, and I think I remember us coming out thinking, well, that's that's the league now, mm. you know. How old was he then? How old is he? He's 24 now. Um, how long ago you don't want to think been? how long ago that was. <laughs> no, I just, I just, to be honest, I can't remember. Um, it had to be about 2010. 2010. Mm. Robbie Keane mm. was at Celtic. Aye, aye. Okay. Yeah, that was that was that was a pretty memorable okay. game. Uh, what's your biggest thrill? Um, I think the modelling uh, answer to that is watching my kids grow up. I mm-hmm. suppose. Uh, other than that, um, going to going to see a really good gig yeah. uh, at Barrowlands usually. Um, probably Paul Weller. Um, okay. So yeah, I mean, I, I still get a real. I've lost count of how many times I've seen the jam or the style counsellor Paul Weller but mm. every every time uh, you know it's May this year you know and it, what, what he normally does is it's normally a Barrowlands type gig and then it's normally a exhibition centre or something yeah. like that and the exhibition centre ones don't tend to be as good mm. um, but yeah, yeah. Okay. What's your biggest disappointment? Never learning the guitar um, or to be able to speak a foreign language uh, there's still time I suppose but you know the, the guitar I, I took um, guitar lessons briefly when I was about 14 and I, I turned up and I just all I wanted to do was sound like the Ramones and uh, my mum had got me lessons with this baldy guy with glasses and a, and a funny kind of beard who dug out an Eric Clapton songbook and I thought that's Ugh, there's no fucking way I'm playing, <laughs> you know, and I, and I know that probably the route to the Ramones and the Clash and all the rest of it yeah. would have been learning the chords through the Eric Clapton songbook. But the minute he brought that out, that was it. Or just impatience. I really, I you know, just not enough. Um, I wanted it to happen like that, yeah. you know. But I, I, it's a disappointment and a regret to this day. Mm-hmm. I wish I'd stuck with it. Okay. What's the best country you visited? <sighs> um. I've been lucky enough to go to so many through work. Um, Did you th- actually get to see much of it while you were there? Um, yeah, I mean, the the although I'd seen earlier on there, there's a lot of downtime really. Um, but I think um, I probably tend to focus on places rather than countries. I think yeah. San Francisco is the best place I think I've ever been. Um, and so that, but I wouldn't necessarily say America is mm. the best country. Okay. You know, um, I I really like Italy. I mean, there's there's just every time I go back to Italy, then and that that's never been for work. That's always mm. been. Oh, I'm a, uh, big, a big fan of Italy myself. That's yeah. always been holidays. But I've never had a bad time in in Italy at all. Okay. Well, this may be answer the next one. What's your favourite food? Um, I, I think I've got pre- quite an eclectic tasting food um, the desert I'd island one food you had to eat for the rest oh, of your life uh, that would be a, that would be tough <laughs> um, I'm looking down to see how Terry Butcher's answered that and I'm uh, willing to bet it's steak and chips or no, something no, like that, it's no. his mother's toad in the hole oh right, right okay. um, I, they had a hotel though didn't they you know really? so he's maybe I think um, I love Chinese food Chinese uh, we'll go with that now miscellaneous likes just a couple of things that you like and doing in life um, sunshine, uh, the daylight. I'm one of these kind of people who struggles through the winter mm-hmm. because there's not enough of it. Um, I like 
paradoxically, I like Kilmarnock where I live, although I'm Glaswegian. Um, I, um, I, 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 to be honest, I, that's quite a difficult one. I think life's pretty good, to okay. be honest, generally. We'll see if this one's easier. Miscellaneous dislikes. I hate with a fucking passion the <laughs> M77, um, and I, I kind of feel that in the 31 years that I've been driving it, it's gradually driving me insane. I've now got to the point where um, I can name the things automatically. I could do it blindfold. There's a there's a religious sign on the right-hand side just as you come up past half the... You know, that tells me how my soul's going to be saved. Um, there's a wee, tiny wee Christmas set of Christmas tree lights that someone's put on a, on a thing... Uh, just before you get to the Eaglesham turn-off and has never removed it and I see it every day. I see the same people in the morning. Yeah. Uh, you remember that Michael Douglas film? Yeah, Falling Down. Falling Down, yeah, yeah. I am, I am one... <laughs> uh, one long uh, <laughs> congested route into Glasgow away thing? from that when you go to bed at night you close your eyes and you see I'm, I'm totally I mean I'm totally convinced that I've paid enough money that I deserve my own fucking lane for one year you know before I retire there should be a lane for Dave's down the left hand side that no students are allowed on no farm vehicles no buses you know no lorries that no lorries about the, yeah. if, they, if the SNP want my vote for an independent Scotland I want a lane of Dave okay. on the M77 I don't, I don't know if that's viable no, but we'll give it a go it's not yeah. too much to ask Nicola yeah. come on right favourite TV show um, favourite TV show um, I've always loved Only Fools and Horses um, and I think there's probably an element of the influence in the mm. books in terms of the number of characters and yeah. you know the investment and what yeah. they all mean and it's how they all influence. care for each other. It's a big influence on me as well. Aye, no, and John Sullivan's writing, aye, uh, aye. and in particular the way he's got a lot of characters who don't appear in, in the show. Yeah, they get talked about a lot, and there's there's a very they're visual, still fully formed. But yeah, sunglasses are on, and aye. Paddy the Greek and stuff like that. I, I mean, it, for for the same reason, The Simpsons as well. I mean, The Simpsons is genius. Yeah. You know, it's just well, it was. I, I think it's maybe not so much now no I think that maybe the first eight, 84 seasons were, were a bit <laughs> okay for me no certainly the, the first 10 12 I think were really good but then I think they've just they, 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 they had to they had to there's a sort of golden age I think the season 3 to season 9 yeah. uh, is just first class mm. gold star television yeah. but the first two seasons are still great and I think probably seasons 10 to 13 are still really really good yeah. even I watch the odd one now and there's still laughs in it yeah it's just maybe no as certainly no as good aye, as it used aye. to be but there's still mm. laughs in it but just on the so I've, I've got a sort of the only fools and horses thing so I always I've always enjoyed it but it's, it's I've, I probably don't feel it the same way as, as you two do but I remember one Christmas um, I was in my, my brother's bedroom and we were watching it and I'm I'm lying on the bed I'm sitting on a sofa bit or something like that and there was something I can't even remember what it was but I laughed so much that I bumped into <laughs> this thing and a speaker came to, you know you know these speakers used to be like it was like solid wood mm-hmm. and it came down and it hit me right Jesus. in the corner of my eye and it pretty much just knocked me out and there was blood pouring from it and everything and um, so yeah I have um, I have a bit of PSD PSD <laughs> PTSD Associative trauma Yeah so I'm not quite sure But there there have been Some absolutely classic moments From that Such as the chandelier thing And you know The 
there's one I remember where they they painted a room or something and they yeah, got no. paint off the railway or yeah. something and it was right, like bright right, yellow yeah it was a local Chinese restaurant yeah. they and they come in with their, their sunglasses on yeah okay so moving on singers favourite singer or singers um, Paul Weller really mm. um, I think I've always sort of I mean that, that that's probably quite a difficult question for me to answer because you know music is is um, pretty pervasive for yeah. me if you know what I mean but mm. I think I would always come back to Weller as someone that it, it wouldn't really matter what he put out I would still buy it mm. and I would still go to the so maybe if that's the definition of a wee bit of loyalty towards somebody then that's it mm. I, I tend to think it was also your go to I mean because quite often I'll, I'll be wanting to li- listen to some music and I think would that and if I can't think I'll always just listen to Bowie yeah. and he's my yeah, go to yeah. you know and it's like well, if, if nothing else has taken me, I know I'm going to enjoy aye, that. Aye. So, have you been to see the uh, from the jam? The no, I, I, I don't know whether I would or not. I mean, I, they're, they're um, so this is this is a Bruce, Bruce Foxton and yeah. Buckler. I, I'm I guess, not. So it's their their bands playing jam songs. I'm not against tribute bands generally. I just I think I would def- I would find that one quite difficult, you know. Um, and it's got nothing to do with the fact that you know. Weller himself probably isn't that enamoured by it, mm. um, but maybe he isn't. I don't know. But I, I, I don't know. It's no, not for me. Right. <laughs> uh, there was a thing on the other night there on the radio just when I was driving home about, and it and it was um, Jim. Uh, I forgot the guy's name. Dave Hill from Slade. Yeah, I sacked him. Yeah. He'd sacked Don Powell. <laughs> yeah, so. Um, so Don Powell because they were both founding members, Don Powell's now going to put forward Don, Don Powell's slate. Yeah, no. <laughs> you know, and, and it prompted a whole discussion about, you know, when is when is the entity of a band... You well, know, I think there's a note, two bucks fizz, two bucks fizzes going about. Well, the, the, the conclusion to that story was they felt that um, if, if the singer, the lead singer or the front of a band had gone, then... Kind of the soul of the band's yeah. gone. Yeah, you know? but then again, you get something like the, the Stranglers, and it's not really held them back. Then no, they still. No. I don't really, really hear about Hugh Cornwell doing many big gigs in anything like that, but the Stranglers still seem to be going. Aye, uh, strength, uh, strength. I'm just saying that there was a there was a band. I can't remember the name of it from the seventies, maybe, and th- there was about forty of them on stage. And you can imagine them all splitting into their own separate entities. <laughs> That's just taking it a bit far. But I did. I saw that as well, and it's it's like. Come on, yeah. they're, they're not young uh, men, are they? I kind of agree with you though, but I mean, again, there's like an excess in Queen are still going, and there's part of me that does just what am I do band? <laughs> Everybody's got to make a living, do you yeah, know? yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Okay, we've got a couple more here. Favorite actors? Um, favorite actors? Um, I think Tom Hardy's a great actor. Oh. I think Christian Bale's a great actor. Mm-hmm. Um, Al Pacino. Um, female actresses. Uh, I, th- I think um, I'm terrible with names, and I've forgotten. <laughs> I forget that's that's really really terrible. Um, but the women who, uh, oh God, that's dreadful. Marge Gunderson and oh, uh, Frances McDormand. Aye, Frances McDormand. She's she's incredible. Uh, you know, she's as good an uh, an actor as I think I've ever seen. Yeah. Anything that she's been in, do you mm. know? So, um, yeah. Okay. Uh, best friend. Who's your best friend? My best friend uh, is 
Um, you know, you get to an age where you start off with loads of friends, and then they get narrower, and you don't see them as much. But um, I'm, I'm fortunate enough to work with uh, a mate who's been a friend for thirty odd years. Mm. You know, and we are now directors in the practice. So mm. you know, I think that's a pretty close relationship. Um, and and a lot of the foreign stuff that we've done, we've both been doing that. So you know, mm. I, I would say. Peter Moran from our office is my best friend, yeah. Okay. Who's been your biggest influence on your life? Um I think well, there's again there's different people at different times really. Um I think the my first boss who died recently, um I uh went into again it's an, an elaborate story which I'll try and <laughs> curtail as much as I can. Um in nineteen eighty two when I left school um, I fannied about with just mobile disco. I, I worked as a groundsman at a tennis club and all sorts of three weeks in a in an ice cream factory. Did some two weeks in a funeral parlour. Couldn't stand any of them. Um, and then ended up um, in work ex- youth opportunities. If you remember Sanchez's mm. youth opportunities yep. thing. And there was only two options. And my my mate at the time. Uh, who we were doing the DJing together. He was in a similar situation with his, with his parents. Um, and one of them was to work in an architect's office uh, as, a, as a junior yeah. assistant, and the other one was to work in the accounts office. I famously can't add up at all. I'm terrible <laughs> with, no, innumerate to the, to the uh, it's probably the way to describe it. So yeah. he said, I don't give a shit. It's just 23 pound a week for me. And I said, I couldn't have faced being in something that had me working with numbers yeah. so I'll take that one and that's how I kind of got into anything to do with architecture mm. and I suppose that guy was an influence on me because I think over the period of time um, it kind of persuaded me that being an architect was something that first of all I could actually become and that secondly it was something that would be worthwhile yeah. you know um, and I never ever really thought that that would be the case but you know you, you, you come across people in your life that um, there's, you know, maybe just a chance meeting, and it takes your life in a different direction, yeah, you know. And I, I, I think he was definitely someone from who did that for me, you know. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the last question: Who and which person in the entire world would you most like to meet? Alive or dead? Well, it's up to you. If you, if you um, want, if you want to go to the grave store and have a wee chat with them. <laughs> Um, nah, we'll keep, well, alive or dead, yeah, Tom. Yes, that's fair enough. That's a tough one. Um, Einstein, probably. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, 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 I can't, I'm, I can't articulate the reason why. Yeah, I just, you know, to to meet someone with that amount of influence and knowledge, and also know that there was. He was a bit kind of off the wall, and mm. you know, um, I, I think it would be curious to be in a room with somebody like that, yeah, who's, who's a wee bit kind of otherworldly, if you know what I mean, yeah, yeah. do you know? And I, I'd just be interested to know what that felt like. I mean, I know there's obvious people like Muhammad Ali and stuff like that, yeah, they carry a level of charisma that you would want to be a part of, um, but I am a wee bit in, in that kind of mindset that you know. 
that not meeting your heroes and stuff like that is yeah, probably yeah. the right thing, to, mm. <laughs> right thing to do, yeah, just in case they disappoint I'd, you. Yeah, well, as I always say, and I'm not going to go into the story this time, but I've met my hero and, yeah, I say always meet them. So, yeah. So there we go. Can I just go back to your first question? Can you tell me who that is then? Jim Gallagher, Clyde Bank goalkeeper. Oh, right, of course, all right, yeah. okay. Can I just go back to the first question, David, sure. if you don't mind your, your middle name? Uh-huh. Do you mind saying where that comes from? It's, mom, it's my mum's. Well, uh, this is something right, that came up in yeah. one of our previous podcasts, was about people having their mum's maiden name as, right. as their middle name. Mm-hmm. Um, um, so, Bob Wilson, Bob Primrose Wilson. Right. Primrose is his mother's maiden name. Uh-huh. So this is and this was something I'd never David known Stewart, about. who was in here with his, yeah. uh, his middle name, is his mother's maiden name. Right. And I think possibly in this, there's another one, um, but... We'll maybe get to that if it comes yeah, to that. Yeah, I just, I just thought that might be, that might be the reason. Do you know the thing? Uh, t- you bringing that up as it being unusual. I, when, I was, when I was younger, I just thought that was a yeah, well, yeah, but yeah, I discovered it's, it's not as unusual. It's a Scottish tradition, tradition apparently. It's oh, a right, Scottish right, tradition. Okay. There's just nothing... Well, I'm, I don't have a middle <laughs> name, so that doesn't doesn't help. But no, that is fascinating. But I mean, okay, we'll jump back in the magazine. We're at page 20. Okay. Turn your pages to page 20, please. And we're at goal lines. So this is readers' letters. So I'm, I'm going to pick a th- few out. Um, come back, deserters. So John Judge from Glasgow writes, I'd like to comment on Derek Johnson's article when he called for cheers, not jeers, from the fans. Now Rangers are going through a sticky patch. So John, in the, the letter, talks of Rangers 2-2 draw with Clyde and the cup replay only attracting 10,000 supporters. He remembers when 30,000 would be Ibrox regardless. And he goes on to say, what happened to those deserters? Couldn't they stomach the thought of being beaten by part-timers? So the shoot reply and say, fans just about everywhere are fickle when things aren't going well. It's been a disappointing season for Rangers by their standards and this was reflected in the low gate. So yeah, I think this was something that was just happens, you know, it's cyclic, isn't it? It happens with teams throughout history is... They, they do have these lulls they, they, they do I, I think though um, it's an unusual thing really when you look forward to Rangers time and mm. the lower leagues though the one thing that I know I know it was for probably different reasons yeah. but the one thing that did stay kind of uh, constant was the level of home support mm-hmm. do you know I, th- I think definitely in recent years so maybe the last 20 years or something maybe a bit longer the support Rangers and Celtic have been that constant so high level solid, yeah. and you know I think I think to a degree it is the you know it is about making sure that you have some, sort of have one over the other side so yeah, if, if yeah. the other one stops no we, we've just got to keep yeah, going on yeah. so irrespective of whether they're actually enjoying it they'll still go to the games mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and support which is, is fair enough uh, but certainly, the, in talking about when Rangers went through the lower leagues as well, I think there was a newness to it. There was about going to different grounds. It was about aye. experience new things. And maybe at this point with the ten thousand, it was it was just the same old, Topped same it. old, same aye. old. And you know, Celtic hadn't too long done their nine in a row. So I mean, Rangers had won a few titles since then, I think as well. But I guess Aberdeen were were becoming their force at this mm-hmm. point as well. Um, so, yeah, you, you can. The fact is, there's no doubt the Rangers support dwindled away there. But you know, you can point it to other um, other clubs happening as well. Yeah. And one of the the things opposite to that that I've found is that, you know, 
okay, they were doing better, but the crowds at Aberdeen, Dundee United, but even Hearts, Hibs and things like that, maybe not so much Hibs, probably Hearts, were, were quite high. Mm-hmm. St Mirren were getting, you know, decent crowds, four, oh, six thousand. Yeah. So, you know, it's you could you could argue all different reasons why this happened and um no doubt the opposite team will mm-hmm. you know you know, the the opposite team will make fun or the supporters will make yeah, fun yeah. of the ones that are going down. But um so John Judge has has judged Rangers on that one. I'm surprised they never used that in a John <laughs> Judges. You know, it's the sort of thing they do. So on the next article we're looking at is Well Done George. So this is on George Best at Hibs. And this is Jimmy McGough of Coventry writes Congratulations to George Best. Since making his comeback with Hibs he has done extremely well. Even after being away for so long, I still consider George to be better than many players in the English first and second divisions. And Shoot's reply to this says, It's a shame that bad weather and occasional, and they put in quote, disappearance has meant George's comeback has been rather start-stop, but he's certainly shown much of his old skills for Hibs. And the best was 33 when he joined Hibs, and he made 17 league appearances, scored three goals. And it was chairman Tom Hart who signed Best on a pay-per-play basis. Now, he didn't help Hibs from being relegated that season, but he did increase the crowds, and apparently the home crowd in his first appearance was quadruple what it what it normally was, so it was absolutely an influence on that, and I'm sure they, they got their money back. But there was a point he was sacked by Hibs after going in a massive drinking session with the French rugby team who were in Edinburgh playing Scotland, although he was brought back a week later. And, and the night he was with Debbie Harry in the Caledonian Hotel... And missed, and missed oh. the game against their United the next day. Well, that's, that's fair enough, though, isn't <laughs> it? Well, maybe I just have to say that I, I've, there's a wee reference to that in the book that I've written, but you know, I think had to research that heavily just to make sure that you know uh, I was on fairly safe ground. But yeah, yeah. I think the uh, well, the whole band were effectively in the Caledonian Hotel, but it seems to have been particularly taken with Debbie Harry. Yeah, no, I couldn't, I couldn't imagine why. There's a there's a, there's a good book. Uh, called when George came to Edinburgh by John Neil Munro, which is about obviously it's about George Best time at Hibs. Yeah, it's quite an entertaining book. Yeah, but I, I just you know it's a fact that Jimmy McGough here is is probably seen it from a bit of a distance about George. I think George had went with his time at Hibs. You know, a lot of people remember it, bits and pieces of it fondly, but there's as it as should mention here, there was occasional disappointment. I think it was, a, it was a, yeah, there was at least one game where. It was maybe this occasion where he didn't turn up um, due to circumstances. Um, but, yeah, I think Hibs, Hibs made a, a, a decent, you know, money out of it, if nothing else. Mm-hmm. And, and obviously, we're still talking about the fact that George Best was at Hibs. We look at the yeah. photographs. It's great seeing him in the Bukta, Bukta strip and things. And it's, you know, it's, it's legends, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Okay. So we'll move on to page 22 here. And this is vote now for the shoot most exciting player of the year. Okay, so this was an annual award, and in this publication, the reader gets a chance to nominate the player of the year. They can specify whether it's an English or Scottish player by putting an E or an S in the box provided. And they can also provide two of the Smith's Crisps football crazy tokens from the magazine with the entry form. So you can also enter a competition by adding in no more than 20 words what you consider the most important qualities needed for a top league player. I always find those things really. Do you start with 
But I think that the best player has to have these qualities, or do you just it's write the qualities? Point. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I would have known what a bullet point was back then. I probably would have done that and done one quality right at the very end. Uh, so the first prize was a portable colour TV. Yes. Runners up, five transistor radios and 50 super Adidas Telstar footballs. Um, and if you look, notice in the coupon, it says you, you have to put your address twice and I'm not 100% sure why you would do that. The only thing I can think is that David, it's to do with the vote and the competition, but does that mean somebody <laughs> has to sit there cutting them up? Well, I maybe thought they would cut that bit out and stick it on your portable TV that they send you back. You know? <laughs> well, I'd hope they'd wrap it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, th- th- I've no idea why that is, but um, yeah, considering how many entries they're going to get, and they're only giving away one TV, yep. it probably makes sense just to write out a, you know, that one. So there we go. Before um, we jump into the next uh, page, David, yep. had you been a professional football player, what would your ideal career have been? Um, what would my ideal career have been? Um, I think uh, oh, that's a really interesting question. Um, I was never really good enough to have thought about that. Yeah. I played amateur football, but never really with any uh, expectation that it would go any further than that. Um, but I think if I had been a professional football player, uh, I would probably have preferred to have played for a while in Scotland uh, maybe to about 22 or something like that and then I somehow secured a move to so is this in the lower leagues with Scotland straight straight in at Rangers no 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 I I I think uh, gravitating up through um, amateur and being potentially overlooked somehow (laughs) um, but then all of a sudden um People thinking, why is this guy not being on a, a radar for S forms and things like that? And then you've got a lot of people clamouring over you. And I've obviously, clearly, by the age of 18, I would have had the mental capacity to cope with all that attention <laughs> uh, and the maturity. Um, I would have turned Rangers down, and there would have been an expose on the back cover that, you know, um, Ross turns down boyhood heroes, uh, potentially to go to Celtic who have offered <laughs> far more money um, and then eventually at the last minute you know so are you wearing a really garish jumper at this point when you're getting your photograph taken <laughs> yes um, <laughs> arm round arm round my agent uh, who is also my dad you know just uh, giving advice and then Rangers for one season uh, and then down to Chelsea one season and then on to a European career um, which is punctuated by fallouts because I couldn't <laughs> speak the language um, uh, so bouncing around all these different uh, clubs and eventually lower league continents to come <laughs> back um, and write for the daily record um, you know about the misery that's a fall from grace isn't it <laughs> I've just tried to think about how how would it have likely to have gone, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, no, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think probably I, I was at an age where I loved playing football. Um, 
and eventually what what killed me playing football was um, doing architecture because I hadn't really gone through the school system and university system the way I would maybe have wanted to the only mm-hmm. option available for me was to do to go to university part time yeah. so I was working at the same time and going to Glasgow School of Art part time and you know you're up there two nights a week and it's times when teams are training and uh, stuff you know yeah. so eventually I had I had to kind of make a decision between that and I was actually enjoying it you know I thought um, this is something that I think I could be quite good at uh, or something as as relatively short term as playing football so mm-hmm. eventually I just went back to playing Sunday League yeah, um, and that was alright um, so it's never it's, it's probably never something that I've ever really had a massive passion to do yeah. um, you know per- perversely because I, I, I can play football I've always still wanted to be in a band more right, okay. <laughs> you know so if, if you were giving me that idea ide- ideally what would you have done if you could have done anything it wouldn't necessarily been play football I'd probably rather have been um, Johnny Marr or something, yeah. do you know? Good answer. Yeah. Four years in the Smiths and four years <laughs> electronic and then bust up with everybody. Yeah, that guy's just far too hard to work with. Yeah, then then you'd have your own offshoots of the same band. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so so we're on pages twenty three to twenty six. Here is the, the club spotlight on Rangers, and we have the double page spread in the middle as well. So. It says Rangers, Scotland sleeping giants. So we're going to start with the article. The article includes photos of Colin Steen scoring Rangers' first goal at the World Cup, at uh, the World Cup, the Cup Winners' Cup final in 1972. There's uh, John Gregg, the Rangers manager, and David Cooper in action, surrounded by St Mirren players. Now that that St Mirren photo there, sort of, it sort of put me in mind of the the Maradona one, mm-hmm. or the the, the Iniesta. Yeah, that that's surrounded by players. That's it's given has that sort of feel to it, and I'd never seen it before. Um, so, the article begins with one of the prouder boasts of the supporters of Rangers is that their club has never been relegated since their formation. This season, the same Ibrox supporters were looking anxiously over their shoulders following a poor run of results, which left them near the foot of the Premier Division. Relegation is now almost an impossibility, but the fact Rangers are not up there challenging Celtic has placed great pressure on manager John Gregg, a man whose name has become almost synonymous with the club. It says, Gregg has an insatiable appetite for hard work and is far too humble to admit that there were many occasions where he carried the team to results. And they also they give a story about the sporting side of Greg as mentioned in the story from the season before, where ten man Celtic won four two against them to all but clinch the title. So Greg took the time to go into the Celtic dressing room after the game and congratulate Celtic manager Billy McNeil. And of the gesture, Billy said, "I'd like to think that I have might have been able to do the same sort of thing if the result and the circumstances had been reversed." I think that's just a really it, it sums up, you know, what we what we know of John Gregg. It sums up what we know of Billy McNeil. Oh, yeah, That's yeah. the sort of men that they were. Mm-hmm. Um, so it says Gregg has suffered from poison tip snipers this season, but he's kept his cool and he hasn't panicked, but continues to do things his way. And John Gregg himself says, "I've had a good look at the transfer market. There are players who have come to my notice, but I need men who want to play for Rangers and to wear that blue jersey with pride." I must have dedication at Ibrox. I demand 100% effort on the playing field. Nothing else will satisfy me. I won't tolerate lack of effort. 
Now, Jers have struggled this season, and Greg is perplexed that the same set of players were good enough to win the Scottish Cup and League Cup the previous season, as well as knocking out Juventus and PSV out of Europe. Uh, many of the players are ageing, so we've got McCloy, Jarden, Forsyth, Miller, Jackson, McLean, McDonald, and there's many who would like to see them replaced with a more youthful team. Uh, at the moment, the team is a slumbering giant in need of a blood transfusion to awaken it to the dawning of a new era. I mean, that's quite a, that's like the, you know, the advert for a new movie or something like that. They need yep. a blood transfusion to awaken it to the dawning of a new era. Now, the article goes through a brief history of the club, including the European Cup Winners' Cup win in 72. And some of the, the notable mentions are Jim Baxter, there's the wee blue devil, Alan Morton, Willie Henderson, Willie Woodburn, George Young. And it also mentions that Rangers have started the work to modernise the stadium with work already underway. They are gearing themselves for the future. It's now John Gregg's responsibility to get a team to match that invention and industry. And on this other page as well, there's um, photos including Peter McCloy, Sandy Jarden, Sean McDonald and Kenny Watson. So, I mean, what's your thoughts on this sort of period and John Gregg and Rangers at the time? I'd, I'd from my memory anyway it, this was probably about the worst that got I mean mm -hmm. nine, 1980 um, uh, the club we finished fifth in the league that year yep. and you know I remember we were only four points above I think Kilmarnock were eight Kilmarnock, and yeah. the other two got relegated underneath that mm -hmm. and it, okay two points for a win in those days yeah. but um, you know it, it it was a pretty turgid time, I think. The one thing I find really interesting, um, and probably like a lot of bigger clubs at that time, um, you know, how, how things have changed, really. You know, e even though this was probably the worst season for... And you can tell from the nature of the article there, yeah. that he was under a lot of stress and pressure mm. with the results. He was still there for another three years, yeah. do you know? Um, whereas I think um, they, they probably were a club that felt tied to the fact that they had players that had won the Cup Winners Cup, you know, and there was a bit of far too much loyalty mm. to them but probably worse than that you know, how you imagine the owners of the club at that time taking the decision to fire the guy who is effectively Mr Rangers, That's you know. Basically, I mean the quotes he gave there, that's exactly Aye, the sort of thing uh, Rangers fans absolutely. want to hear and, from the and the thing is, you know um, I've met John Gregg a couple of times and he absolutely is, you know, from that era where there was far more respect between, uh, you mm -hmm. know, even rival clubs and stuff yeah. like that. It's it's funny looking back at it. I mean, I, I know that, you know, you mentioned earlier on, it's, it's 40 years ago, yeah. and uh, that was a wee bit of a shock to me. Obviously, it's 40 years ago, mm -hmm. but it's even though it's in the past, it doesn't feel like that. Yeah. And, you know, that's, that's a lifetime ago, do you know? <laughs> I know, I know. Um, it really particularly is. when you think about the nature of football and the way it's played and how you know and, and how rivalry has changed through the ability for people to communicate directly with each other with people mm. that they don't know yeah. you know it's it's definitely a different type of environment now you know yeah. um, and they just clearly um, that loyalty would have gone far earlier mm. you know so as you mentioned um there was so Dundee and Hibs were the teams that were relegated that season. There was a bit of a gap between Dundee, who were second bottom, and Kilmarnock. There was a six-point gap, which you know, as you say, it's three games. Mm -hmm. um, Aberdeen won the league on forty-eight points, Celtic a uh, point behind, and the gap was 
12 points, 11 points between Rangers and Aberdeen. So again, that's yeah. five, six games. And if you think of that nowadays, you know, 15 points or something like that, that's mm-hmm. you'd be that's a disappointment to be that far yeah. behind. And Samirin, absolutely, but they finished third on 42 points. So Samirin were three wins away from winning the Premier League. I, I mean, that is absolutely outstanding that you know that sort of consistency that mm-hmm. they had that season um, I mean looking at the goal difference plus 10 against Aberdeen's 32 so I guess if those three win unless one of those three wins was against Aberdeen then they probably would have struggled with that but Dundee United came next and then Rangers Morton Thistle and Kilmarnock and as we say between United and Kilmarnock was four points between mm-hmm. all those so pretty tight in the middle there uh, so if we go to the middle pages, um, we can have a look at the team photo here, um, which is which is quite a quite something else. So we'll just start off with the strips first. So um, blue shirts with red, white, and blue striped wing collars. I think um, collars and cuffs have got that that banding to them as well. So it's an umbro kit, blue socks and white shorts. The yellow goalkeeper strip, which so it just reminds me, especially with. Um, with uh, Stuart Kennedy there, it, it just sort of reminds me of uh, John Gordon Sinclair and Gregory's <laughs> kind of. Um, it, it just looked, you know, I think that's maybe what he was modelled on for that. Yeah. Um, Not the greatest Rangers kit for me. No. Uh, I think the pinstripe one that came along after that mm. was a was a good one, and then uh, the, the McEwen's Lager one with the checked shadow stripes. Just the one that turned purple in the late eighties. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm kind of a minimalist really <laughs> <laughs> you I think it should just be the blue uh, the yeah. 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 Well, I, I, think, I think there is a lot to that it's like you know there's a classic feel to strips that are very minimalist mm-hmm. and it's, you know there's something about just having the badge and, and it's obvious who it is it's obvious who yeah. the team is yeah. from that. You don't you don't need to mess about with it. But back to Tom's point about the strip, I think that's a that's a material one as well, a sort of cotton one, isn't it? Mm-hmm. So it was going to be quite heavy and not very not very nice. So there's a um, couple of tracksuits at the bottom as well. Yeah. The tracksuit the tracksuit tops themselves look quite similar, just like long sleeved outfield tops. Yeah. Almost with a button but this button, yeah. So uh, buttoned up the middle, it's, yeah. it's a strange sort of thing. In the it's weird, sort of sailor's uniform. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that's it's it. like a a jerkin. Mm. You call it. No, th- th- those guys they've got the they're wearing the the away top underneath it. If you notice, that's what I am. all mm. right, okay. The the, the red one. Uh, the weight the weight one was uh, red. Yeah, well, it's, it's sort of an inverse type one of the. And I'm a big fan of that where the away strip is exactly the same yeah, as the home aye, strip, aye. but it's just the colours are are different now on the the tracksuit as well I mean you won't see and, and we spoke about this earlier on you know you say there's the, the, there's trouble with flares in Scottish football these days there was trouble with flares in Scottish football back then as well I mean you're talking about a sailor's outfit that probably <laughs> also awesome. adds to the look as well I mean those are those are quite um, they are brutal quite massive flares now I was going to mention um, Mr Urquhart there and I was going to point out if you look at it and look at the size of his head compared to other people's, it yeah. just looks abnormally. Does I mean big? It, it doesn't look like he was originally in that photograph. Yeah. You know, it, do, it probably days before Photoshop, obviously, but it it does look like that's someone who's been kind of stuck on. Mm-hmm. You know, I have I have myself done a Photoshop of that. 
Right. And made his head not not that oh, one, right, right, right. but I've I've actually made his head look bigger than that. So <laughs> just sort of really to emphasise it. You but have to say that the back row there, Tom Forsyth looks like he's carrying about excess weight. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, I mean, this was the thing. There was not a lot of them that looked athletic, and I think even if they were athletic, I just think the styles and the the cuts of the the tops and the hairstyles and thing just didn't make them look as athletic. I mean, you, you look at you look at footballers nowadays with their six pack yeah. and things like that, and they're and they're, they're quite fine wearing these tops that are basically sprayed on. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't you wouldn't be get that any fee. Yeah. I, th- I think to be honest, that's that's why you know you get these uh, pub arguments about whether the uh, Barcelona of now would beat the yeah. you know Real Madrid of the early sixties. It's such a daft question, you know. You think that. The level of fitness and the level mm. of they're, they're not really comparable, I don't think. Yeah. Do you know? Yeah. But you look at that now, and the one thing that jumps out at me is, and I know it's to do with, um, you know, the time and lifestyle and all the rest of it. But players look really old. You know, <laughs> I mean, they look um, like Colin Jackson. Colin Jackson was always good. looked like he was about fifty. But you still yeah. still got um, the the dark hair there, so it's not all going grey there at that point. Um, Stuart Kennedy, as you mentioned, Peter McCloy. I mean, I the thing I think when I look at Peter McCloy and Stuart Kennedy now as the evolution of the goalie, mm. you know, um, to somebody who would basically have to be able to kick it. Yeah. Potentially, yeah. if the ball's at his feet, beat a player coming on. You can imagine the two of them trying to do that. Mm. You know. Um, it's just it's that that's one of the major changes in the game. I think the way the keeper's position has has yeah. changed. You know, yeah. Um, and there's so much about that uh, picture that you you just look at it and think. Um, I mean, we've got loads of silverware at the front as well. Um, they've uh, they've obviously borrowed that from <laughs> previous seasons. So Scottish Cup, Scottish League Cup, the Glasgow Cup. That what else? To be what's that one there? Is, is that the Glasgow Cup? No, yeah, the I big think one? that's the Glasgow Cup there. Oh, that's right, a big right. majestic trophy. Yeah. It's a Glasgow Cup, so I don't know. Uh, that may be the, the, the Friendship Cup thing friendship that they, they drink. <laughs> <laughs> Tennis <laughs> the, the Loving Cup. <laughs> the Loving Cup, yeah. Back then it was just friendship, but after a few it becomes <laughs> oh, loving. Oh, right, right. No. But do we want to... Um, that's any probably of the names? somebody's ashes, isn't it? Yeah. Any of the names we want to pick out there? The um, Bobby Russell was always a player that um, I kind of looked out for mm-hmm. because um, my cousins knew him. He played with Shettleston Juniors mm-hmm. for a while. And I don't know that he went... I can't, I can't remember whether he went from Shettleston Juniors to he the did. lower well, level Rangers team. Aye. Um, but so I think for that reason... I, I always think you know there's a guy who used to play around the corner from where I lived and he, he knew my cousin Malcolm mm. and you know um, there, there was an almost direct connection yeah. there um, and then when I moved down to Kilmarnock um, Gordon Smith was in mm-hmm. the Kilmarnock team at the time yeah. and that seemed like a really big and I know Gordon a wee bit now um, and that seemed like a really big move and to look back and see him in the, in, in the team there you know as mm. I think Seems is strange. it Gordon Dale's in there as well, was it? Gordon Dale's next to him, right? Yeah, yeah. David Cooper, Derek Johnson. Bobby Russell had a trial at Clyde Bank uh, when he was when he was with Shettleston, uh and uh, he played. I think it was Dundee United reserves, and Bill Monroe offered him a contract after after the game. Shettleston wanted to keep him for till their Scottish mm-hmm. Cup run was over, and Bill Monroe wanted to take him right away. But uh, Bobby Russell said, "I've got a." 
trial tomorrow night up at Tanadice for for Rangers. Let me let me go. Do that first. And yeah. Bill Monroe said at that moment, I knew I'd, I knew I'd lost him. <laughs> and I think I think it was at about half time. Jock Wallace had come in and went, "I will sign you, and we'll wait for Chelston mm-hmm. to get knocked to the Junior Cup." But he would never he would never came at Claybank. But at that time, obviously, David Cooper was at Claybank. Yeah. So there was that slim chance that Bobby Russell and David yeah, Cooper might play the same playing together at Claybank. Mm-hmm. Uh, just going to move on to your page twenty-seven. And the heading is Miserable Morton. So it says there's an old adage in soccer which says that losing a semi-final is a lot worse than losing the final itself. One team who might agree with that are Morton, beaten in the last four of both the Scottish League Cup and the Anglo-Scottish Cup this season. Uh, So earlier this season, Morton was sitting at the top of the Premier Division thanks to the goal-scoring power of Andy Ritchie and many were convinced they could stay there despite the challenge from Celtic. Yet, since their 2-1 defeat to Aberdeen in the League Cup, nothing has gone right for them and they are struggling to remain in contact with the leaders. Captain Davey Hayes sums up the feeling at the club when he says, It would have meant so much to the club to get through to the League Cup final this season, if for no other reason than to prove we are not just a flash in the pan. Aberdeen had beaten Rangers and Celtic in the run into the semi-finals, but we were confident of success as we had already won at their ground this season. We never underestimated them, but nothing seemed to go right for us that day. The winning goal was scored from a penalty. We had a perfectly good goal disallowed, and Andy Ritchie hit the bar. And it's, uh, ironically, shortly, shortly after the semi-final, Morton took on Aberdeen in the league and won 1-0, and by all accounts, their performance was better in the semi-final than it was in the league. That's and as um, David Hayes says here, he says, I suppose that's football. We'll just have to keep going and reward our supporters for the loyalty they've shown in the past. The players desperately want to win something for the fans. Davy assures shoot readers that even though that sounds a bit corny, it's true, pointing out how the Morton fans have got behind the club. He speaks of the Anglo-Scottish Cup defeat to Bristol City and letting the fans down, especially after they were understandably excited after a tremendous 2-2 result in the first leg. Bristol City, however, won with a late goal in the return match. And Davey says, give them credit, they deserve to win. We never really got started. Uh, now Morton must knuckle down to the hard work required if they are to regain their status as Scotland's most promising team. And they have the players capable of achieving just that. So Shoot mentions the likes of Davey Hayes from the article, Jim Tolmey, Andy Ritchie, Neil Orr, John McNeil, Jimmy Holmes and Bobby Thompson. And it says, but the men from Capolo must motivate themselves once again before it's too late. And the photo in the article shows Davey Hayes surrounded by Aberdeen players during the League Cup semi-final. I think it was probably, that was probably Morton's the highest point, wasn't it? That, yeah. Um, now, regarding the semi-final against Aberdeen, this was the 1st of December, 79. It was played at Hamden. And Mark McGee put the Dons ahead with a header in 14 minutes. Now, he had previously scored for Morton against Aberdeen in the League Cup tie. And in the semi-final, Strachan made it 2-0 just before the break with a penalty. But in the second half, Richie hit the woodwork before netting from the spot in 81 minutes. Uh, referee Willie Waddle disallowed a screamer from Neil Orr. Um, so Aberdeen went through there and they were going to meet Dundee United in the final um, 0-0 in the first game and the replay ended 3-0 to United Now, so Morton remained in the Premier League until 1983 when they were relegated so it really was their golden era um, so I'm going to jump a few pages oh, as well. well we're, we're just we're, uh, 
running short on time, mm-hmm. so I was going to turn to David if that was if that was sure. all right. Uh, David, you're going to read us a wee bit from your forthcoming novel. We're going to treat it to an exclusive extract. Now, I believe that this book is set around the world of Ayrshire Junior Football. Junior Football. Can you tell us a wee bit about it? Yeah, um, it, it's such an exclusive that I still don't really have uh, a title for the book at the moment. It's got a working title of a square ball, um, and it's it's kind of complex really it's not I didn't want to write a book about football per se Um, it's really about people and it's about central relationships Um, but essentially the central character who is telling the story is um, a 29 year old called Danny Garvey who 13 years earlier from the point of view of the story played for um, his local junior team and they'd got to semi-final of um, uh, an, Ayrshire, an Ayrshire Cup a massive achievement for this tiny wee village called Barshaw um, against Auchinleck Talbot he scores the winner and then the, the night of um, the night of the final this semi-final um, something happens that causes him to have to leave and he goes to Aberdeen uh, as a really promising young player he, st- he stayed with Barshaw, uh, really for his his, his elder brother, um, but he ends up at Aberdeen as a youth player, um, and you know a couple of years later has a really bad injury and the career just disappears. Mm-hmm. So he's now back. He, he he had been building a bit of a reputation for being a coach with youth players with our, our broth got them to Scottish Cup final. Um, and something fairly bad has happened to Barshaw they've been put down a division and they, they need a new manager but the other reasons for him coming back are a bit more personal okay. um, and the bit I was going to read you was um, his uncle um, who's not really his uncle Higgy has effectively he works for the committee has created an interview for him um, albeit, albeit he's the only candidate for the job right. and this is him going for the formality of the interview with Barshaw's, um, Barshaw's committee so I'll read you a wee bit of this the committee room is the biggest in the small rectangular complex fresh shaken vac wafts up my nostrils as powerful as smelling salts as soon as the door opens an electric heater makes the room feel like the Amazon when compared to the changing room I've just left the panel of four face me None were here when I played for the club. To their right is the window onto the pitch. It's cracked. Brown tape runs along the fissure on the inside. To their left is a wooden wall panelling carved with the names of captains and players of the year going back to the dawn of the 20th century. Two of those young sons of Barshaw who didn't return from a war also have their names commemorated here. Alongside them is Bill Shankly, who briefly played here. Further along is mine, the club's last great young hope who abandoned it on the eve of their only cup final appearance of recent times. I'm surprised it hasn't been chiselled out like one from an earlier era seems to have been. They know me, but I only know one of them. A ball not yet kicked in anger and I see the defeat in their faces. Sense the heavy gloom that's polluting the air. They're going through the motions. No one will touch this job. They know I know this, but still there's a formality to undergo. Rules are rules. William Kidd's the chairman, he took over early last season. He's new to the area. He doesn't have the deep roots of the others, but he has money, and that's more important than blind enthusiasm for a chairman. 
He runs a small carpet fitting business called Kids Carpets. They run regular adverts on local radio with the ridiculous tagline, Piles Better. Their logo is everywhere around the ground and on the club's red strips. I asked Higgy how much money he has to piece put in to keep this flagging concern going. He didn't know, but reaffirmed just how hard Kids' small connected band have worked to raise money over the last year. It's been a daily reinforcement since I returned. Higgy's done his homework. In the first, in the first division, Auchinleck or have massive committees and run busy social clubs attached to the club, particularly the Talbot. They have seven supporters clubs, many of them formed from the minors groups that still cling to the club as an emblem from their comradeship. They create revenue that allows them to independently raise player budgets of up to 10,000. Co-winning Rangers have a wealthy benefactor ploughing substantial sums in. This permits them to attack former pros winding down their careers. An additional attraction is the offer of employment with businesses associated with the owner. There's little money available for players, but exaggerated expenses and part-time employment can fill the financial gap for men who've done nothing else but play football for a living. It's a sobering moment when that time suddenly comes. Even the other second division clubs like Ardeer, Muirkirk, Truner, Craig Mark can muster finances to change the squad. Barshaw has a tiny fraction of that to work with. We'll be relying on gate money if we can attract a crowd, an intermittent sponsorship from the King's Arms, and the tireless fundraising of its committee members, main and sub. The only other route is favours, but reciprocity is in short supply here like everything else. Mr Garvey, hello. All right, if we call you Daniel. Billy the Kid is a bald ball of meat and whiskey, as wide as he is tall. Danny, I reply. Ah yes, Danny, says the chairman. He probably thinks I should have grown out of Danny, become something more adult. Daniel, en route to the middle-aged era of Dan. We'll take some notes if that's okay. Mr Kid jerks his head sharply to one side and I follow its direction into the corner. A young woman stands so close to a draping curtain that at first I think it's what she's wearing. She has long dark hair and it reaches the clipboard she's holding. The committee introduced themselves as I came in but no one refers to the female. I hear you were quite the prospect when you last pulled on the shirt, eh? It's a stupid icebreaker on anybody's terms. He sounds like a disappointed headmaster about to admonish a former star pupil. It draws my gaze away from the corner of the room. I don't answer. The past is a foreign country and all that bollocks. So Danny, why do you want this job? I resist the urge to tell him that I don't that my main reasons for being back here are nothing to do with the club, that they are simply a convenient staging post in transitioning beyond the dark place that I'm stuck in. I think I know how to win, I say, generalising. The committee react like it was the Gettysburg Address. Nods and smiles, the woman writes, job done for them. Billy the Kid gets up and goes to the cabinet. He opens a door and brings out a decanter. He pours a whiskey for each of his colleagues. They are celebrating after one answered <laughs> question. Well, that's our number one priority, son, says Phil Dick, the only one here that I remember. Phil's wife, Senga, was my primary seven teacher. She was, as you might expect, known as Sukma. <laughs> Scrubbing this off the red brick toilet walls became a full-time job for the janitors. A letter was once given to every child outlining that Mrs Dick was reverting to her premarital name of Brown. It didn't help. Suck my Brown was arguably <laughs> funnier. I briefly consider if she's asking if she's still teaching, but I don't. 442 or 433 poses Bert Thompson, club secretary, as if we're holed up in a bank vault and he's whispering combinational alternatives. 
Don't know, I'll need to assess the players, see how adaptable they are. Good man, he says, winking at the chair in acknowledgement that his one rehearsed question has been addressed. The chair offers me a plastic cup. I decline. Higgy's been keeping an eye on your progress with our broth kids. I glance over at the corner, the woman's still staring out the window, probably watching Higgy doing laps. His recommendation, I'm sure you'll gather. I, I say, merely filling the gap. We had a couple of options, says the chairman. I don't believe him. Higgy would have told me. Gilhooly, last season's captain, was sounded out, but he told Phil Dick that he'd rather fuck a Highland coup while getting a short back in sides off a combine harvester. You've made a few waves up there. The Press and Journal feature, we thought you'd best get in quick before Man United come calling. They laugh, not at me and not in the condescending way this sounds. I think Fergie's probably pretty safe, I say, smiling. They are delighted at this because it opens the door to the real reason why I'm being interviewed for a single candidate post. What's he like then, Big Alec? Asks the Treasurer, Des Bryson, on behalf of the males present. Beaming, expectant faces, perhaps best not to let them down. I conceal the truth and appropriate an apocryphal story that they'll recount at dinner parties for years. He came to the house back in 83, right after the Talbot semi-final, I tell them. They're preparing for the Cup Winners' Cup final and he still finds time to drive all the way to Barshaw to persuade a 16-year-old to sign for his club. This staggers them, and it would have staggered me too had it been the truth. He told me that I'd been nurtured at the Dons, looked after and developed properly. He said I'd be a future Scotland captain under his direction, I tell them. When he said that, I knew it was the club for me. Aberdeen was the option available to me that put the most distance between me and the consequences of what I'd done the night of the Talgate game. Alec Ferguson didn't come personally to pluck me from teenage obscurity. That's the truth, but that's not the tale I'm telling. What a fella, says the chairman. What was the daily interaction with him like? It's apparently they have a flawed view of life for a youth team player at a professional club. He was firm but fair, I began. The cliché comforts them. It's language they understand. They nod in unison. Mr Ferguson didn't take the youth training. That was left to Archie Knox. He was a real Sergeant Major Hartman. The committee are hypnotised by this. The young woman, woman nods her approval. It's subtle and un, almost imperceptible, but I noticed it. The dugout is mine beyond any doubt. This next fabrication might even add a few quid to the meagre weekly subsistence. I was there the time he fined John Hewitt for overtaking him in his car before training. The chairman laughs loudly and shakes his head as if being reminded of the crazy antics of an old friend. They're in the palm of my hand. I'm toying with them. More than one manipulator in our family, it seems. I was in doing the boots and Hewitt strolls in late, but still before the gaffer, who was apparently sitting in his motor in the car park listening to his Frank Sinatra tapes. Their faces ooze admiration at the class of the man whose picture I'm painting, the cut of him, the exquisite taste of him. I'm certain Billy the Kid will be contemplating the possibility of me persuading my old boss to revisit Barshaw, hand out a commemorative medal or two, record a line praising the luxurious comfort of a kid carpet, uttering the words piles better. <laughs> Fergie, we can dispense with the formality now that he's a friend of ours, comes in, face like fucking thunder, strides right over to Hewitt and totally blasts him for being late for training. Hewitt's face, white, like he's about to spew. I'm sure he's thinking, how the fuck does he know that? The boss winks at me, turns back to John Hewitt and says, and that's a thousand pound fine for speeding tea. Oh Christ son, that's brilliant. Phil, Di 
Phil Dick slaps his thighs. I'm not the man they think I am. Brilliant. Thank you. Thank you, David. Thanks very much. Very nice. Did you do much research? Um, oh. Spent a bit of time with Alan Roth. Um, who was he obviously managed to Glen um, I, um He was great. Um, I, my son um, has is involved. He, he's a, uh, on the coaching side at Kilmarnock right. and the, the down at the uh, what's the youth the, the, what's the youth system? The Kilmarnock's got one of those the seven uh, youth academy schools. I've forgotten performance schools. Uh, and his teacher there when he was there was Charles Adam and. Charles played with Kilmarnock yeah. and then went out on loan when he was 18 to a junior club. So he was he was pretty helpful as well. Yeah. Uh, Billy Young, the Auchin Lake Talbot player from the mid uh, eight, mid 90s, aye. and Kevin Toner, who's a mate of mine, who um, was a Grade One referee. Kevin yeah, gave me some just brilliant stories about being a, re- a referee in Ayrshire Juniors football yeah. in the 90s some of the things that I couldn't actually believe to be honest but I've, I've reworked a lot of them you yeah. know into the fabric of the story but I think I mean the important thing is that you know the football bits all there and it, and it's you know for me it's got to be funny but I think there's there's it's a wee bit unusual for me and it's a first person it's the first time right. I've done that no, and there's a bit of a dark edge to the whole thing do you know so um, well I think I mean certainly the 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 idea of the the committee just I mean that just um, seems like that's the way we were talking about it earlier on about the old guard and that that's just what it is it's like they they need their but they need to feel important they need to be Aye. in there well it, it, there's a wee bit of a comment about it that you know they're gravitating towards Ayrshire Village football clubs uh, principally because um, you know the they're they're too poor for the golf club. And their class background makes them feel out of, yeah. you know. Yeah. So this this is their thing, do you know, and it's frustrating. And it's, you know, you're looking at people who plough an endless amount of time into trying to keep a junior club going, mm. and you think, well, why are they doing that? They're they're doing the painting, they're doing the grass. Yeah. Um, but it's it's their identities wrapped up in them, you know yeah. that. And I, I was the reason I wanted to write the book was I was fascinated by that. How people could become obsessed with something that you know, if you took it away from them, particularly in a small village environment, yeah. um, you know, they they would be kind of really, really lost in a way that in some cases uh, would be worse for them than their job or their yeah, yeah. mining industry or whatever. Mm. You know, I find that really um, a really kind of fascinating thing, and obviously. The jeopardy in the story is that the club have been put down at second division yeah. and penalised points for something that happened the year before. So there is that threat in the mm-hmm. background that the club might not exist. Do you know? Yeah. And when can we expect the book to come out? Um, I think I think it's officially um, outlined for October later on this year. Um, I'm kind of breaking the rules of the publishing here because we're not meant to read things that. Um, don't even have uh, a pre-order thing, you know. So the publisher would always think, uh, you know, why are you reading something that people can't then go on and buy yeah. yet, you know? Yeah. But you, you they can uh, get. But it's a football. They, they, well, that's the thing. Yeah, you know, you, you d- please feel free to download all these <laughs> other books. I've got a, you know. I mean, we'll certainly share all. So we'll, I'll get all the links off you, and we'll yeah. share them on the web page because I don't know if you've seen it, but we do a web page to go with the podcast. All right, okay. And what we do is we do. Um, 
photos from the magazine or videos or clips or links to other things yeah, so you can yeah. you can scroll through the webpage while you're listening to this yeah, and actually yeah. you know interact the same way that we yeah. do as I well. mean it just it felt like it was perfect kind of thing and I think the other thing is you know you, you, you finish books and then you, you do the promotion for it and stuff like mm. that but you're always thinking you're always immersed in the thing that you're doing right now do yeah. you know um, sometimes it's you know you have to go back and think as I mentioned earlier on my memory's fading you know and I'm thinking what was in, what was in that story again mm. who are those characters so your head's totally yeah. immersed with this yeah. yeah okay right I'm going to give a so we have a, a charity partner who we we have for the the podcast and they're called Back On Side and I'm just going to read this out and this is what they do so here in the UK one in four people will experience a mental health illness each year Mental health includes a person's emotional, psychological and social well-being. An obvious widespread problem, yet it is estimated that only a quarter of sufferers receive ongoing treatment, leaving the majority of the UK population tackling these debilitating issues on their own. Here at Back On Side, we have recognised this ongoing dilemma and are determined to rebuild a society where no young person or adult is left tackling mental health problems alone. So they, they give a lot of support to people with mental health issues and, and young people. And they, um, so it's at Back On Side on Twitter. But what we, we try and do here um, is we, through the website, there's an option to donate to the, the podcast and for every pound that you donate it's essentially like a raffle ticket mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so for every pound you get an entry and what we'll do is we will the, the magazine that we spoke about the original and the super size one which we'll get you to sign and everybody to sign afterwards and we'll throw in some goodies as well I may throw in some well I'll, I'll, uh, I'll donate you a book e- a, each of the books I'll sign them oh well, superb that'd brilliant. be absolutely brilliant and I'll probably throw in some other stuff from the collection as well uh, as I say what we do for every pound you get a raffle the winner then gets that goodie bag 50% goes to the the charity mm-hmm. back on side and 50% goes to the podcast so that will be available on the website on this page which we spoke about as okay. well um, so I'd, I'd just like to say a special thanks also to Pete Wiley of the Mighty Wah for the use of Story of the Blues and the music for our show so the, the theme to the start and the end is Story of the Blues which is I, I keep saying when it's I, one of my favourite I'll give you one wee quick snippet story of the story of the blues when it Go first came out um, I heard that uh, in, uh, somewhere down in Liverpool actually brought yeah. the record back hadn't hadn't. if you know the story the story of the blues it, it came as an import to start mm. with you know and then it got picked up and everybody was talking about it and I got this record before it came out and we were DJing at the time yeah. uh, late 1982 and I made a claim at the beginning at a night when someone from the Commander Standard was there that if Story of the Blues didn't make it to number one, I would clean the gates of the thing outside with a toothpaste yeah. in the Ford Gate in Kilmarnock. Yeah. And I think it got to number two, actually. <laughs> and the Commander Standard came back in the January and I had to go and do this thing with <laughs> a toothpaste on these gates outside. Yeah. Um, it was an incredible. It's a bit harsh. Well, it's just a bit harsh, aye. But uh, and it's I, also you know, a valuable you, life lesson. You, you, you make a comment like that, and you think nobody's really listening. To be honest, you know, I could have said I would have done it nude, you know, and I'm glad I didn't, because <laughs> it would probably have picked up on that as well. Yeah. But yeah, fantastic so, record. Yeah, it's absolutely brilliant. You can catch up with Pete on www.petewiley.co.uk, where you can check out for details of upcoming gigs and new music. 
And lastly, we'd also like to thank our producer, as always, Diane Jarden, for her great work and support on the podcast. You can check out www.transmissionroom.co.uk where you can book the music recording and rehearsal facilities here in Clyde Bank. So thank you very much, Diane. Thank you, Diane. And where can people find you online, David? Uh, Twitter, primarily, at DFR... it's at DFR10, isn't it? <laughs> we'll, sh- we'll share that. I'm, I'm the same. It's in our, our, um, you can get our website at shootthebreezepod, all one word, shootthebreezepod.co.uk and our Twitter is at shoottb underscore podcast. As I say, the, the, the website has got loads of stuff on there now. For each uh, podcast that does come out, we're going to put loads of information and all the stuff we've been talking about, links to things that maybe questions we've answered and f- or asked and found out about. So, you know, it's I think it's really good that you can look at that and listen to the podcast at the same time so you can, you know, you can feel part of it as well. So, is there anything else, Tom? What's happening with yourself at the well, moment? Well, I think uh, look out for the next issue of Nutmeg uh, magazine with, with both David and I are going to be yep. in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, which comes out in March, some sometime mm-hmm. in March. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I always look forward to that, that dropping through the letterbox. It's, it's great having a physical thing to to, to read and it's a, to get It's a fantastic publication. It yeah. really is. Yeah. yeah. So look out for that or subscribe to it as well um, and on that I'd just like to thank everyone who has listened to the podcast um, so far please keep sharing it amongst your friends share it amongst people who aren't your friends but let's get it out there and get it shared and on that I'd like to say thank you Tom thank you Andy I'd like to say thank you Dave pleasure thank you and thank you everyone for listening until the next time let's shoot the breeze